Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we select six movies, all related to a single theme. We examine the history of the people in front of and behind the camera, try to make sense of how and why the movie was made, and then discuss each one in way too much detail to see if they're any good. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my co-host and dear friend, Bo Ransdell, this season's theme is Monsters Are Universal, where we're taking a look at six remakes of classic Universal monster movies. This is episode four, where we are taking a look at a remake of the 1933 science fiction horror movie, The Invisible Man. This movie was based on the H.G. Wells science fiction novel of the same name, and both deal with concepts of identity, human existence, power, madness, mania, within a narrative that explores the idea of how one can exist if one is not seen. The subject of this episode... Memoirs of an Invisible Man is a unique interpretation of the original material and somehow manages to successfully ignore all of these themes. The movie stars Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah. Sam Neill is our bad guy, and there's a pretty impressive supporting cast of characters. But perhaps the most overlooked name in the credits of this film is the director himself, one Mr. John Howard Carpenter. How did John Carpenter end up directing this movie? Why is Chevy Chase the star? What the? To answer these questions, and many more, let's turn things over to my co-host, Mr. Bo Ransdell, as he helps us explore the memoirs of an invisible man. It's only fitting that during the most hallowed of holidays, Halloween, then we invoke the name of a true master of horror, John Carpenter. As a writer, director, and composer, Carpenter had a run of cinematic achievements that rivals that of the great directors. Perhaps only Alfred Hitchcock can boast a similar period of creativity to what Carpenter managed in the 1970s and 1980s. Not unlike the rise of punk music at the same time, Carpenter represented something new, something anti-authoritarian, and something intensely individualistic. Let's take a quick look at his output for a dozen years or so, starting in 1976. After doing the weird and esoteric sci-fi comedy Dark Star, Carpenter landed a gig making an exploitation movie for under $100,000. Carpenter agreed to make that movie if he could maintain total creative control. Producer Jay Stein Kaplan agreed and Carpenter wrote, directed, edited, and scored what would become known as Assault on Precinct 13. It's a thinly veiled take on an old western siege movie. In fact, one of the early titles was the Anderson Alamo, and Carpenter edited the movie under the pseudonym John T. Chance, John Wayne's name in Howard Hawke's Rio Bravo. It's a nasty bit of cinema, and rose above its grindhouse roots Thanks to Carpenter's gutsy writing and direction, it was also a fine introduction to Carpenter's synth-heavy, minimalist style of scoring, and if you haven't been paying attention to horror television and movies in the past five years or so, it's become quite the rage. Let's keep the Carpenter train rolling, though. His next movie was 1978's Halloween. That's right, his third feature was Halloween. While not the first slasher, nor was it the first masked killer movie, it marked the beginning of the slasher boom of the 1980s, thanks to becoming, at the time, 
the most successful independent feature film of all time. Producers Erwin Yablons and Mustafa Akkad saw Escape from Precinct 13 and wanted Carpenter to make a movie for them about a psychotic killer murdering babysitters. So, once more, Carpenter asked for, and got, creative control of the finished product and went on to make one of the most influential horror films of all time. This marked his first collaboration with cinematographer Dean Cundey, who is responsible for the signature look of much of Carpenter's work during his prime. Carpenter again co-wrote, this time with Deborah Hill, directed and scored, and the theme to Halloween is probably the most recognizable piece of horror music this side of the screeching strings from Psycho. But you guys and gals know all about Halloween, so let's keep going. Released later, but filmed before Halloween, there's Someone's Watching Me, a television movie aired on NBC about a stalker terrorizing a pretty news anchor played by Lauren Hutton. It's pretty good as television movies go, and Carpenter met his future wife, Adrienne Barbeau, on the set. A year later, he would do another television gig, this time with ABC in the guise of Elvis. Kurt Russell plays the iconic singer, and it's largely a love letter to Elvis, but it's pretty damn good. So good, in fact, it was released theatrically in Europe and was nominated for a Golden Globe. It was a chance for Carpenter to show he could do something besides horror, a genre he often felt trapped by in his career, and it's further notable by being the first pairing of Kurt Russell and John Carpenter as star and director. Now back to the big screen with 1980's The Fog. Once more, you may note that the film is called John Carpenter's The Fog. And, once more, Carpenter co-wrote, directed, and scored the movie. When he saw the first assembly of the movie, and that's the thing where you put everything together you shot to see how it all works before you start editing it, he was heartbroken. It was terrible, he said. I had a movie that didn't work, and I knew it in my heart. So, he asked for some reshoots, added John Houseman telling a spooky story at the beginning, and remixed it with the new footage. About a third of the movie is the new footage, and it has become a minor classic in the horror genre. I like it quite a lot, though Carpenter has always had a love-hate relationship with his own creation. The movie did pretty well financially, though the reviews were mixed. Carpenter was never burdened by an excess of good reviews. One of the few exceptions to that rule, though, was Carpenter's next film, 1981's Escape from New York. The script was written in 1976 in the wake of Watergate, and boy, does that cynicism run through the icy veins of this one. Kurt Russell is back in the Carpenter fold as Snake Plissken, a poisoned anti-hero blackmailed into saving the president, and along with him, a cassette tape with instructions on creating a new fusion reactor that could bring peace to the planet from the prison island of Manhattan in a grim near future. One of the great moments in cinema for me is Snake Plissken being handed a gun by his handler and immediately trying to kill the guy with it. Such is his disdain for any kind of authority. This may be the most punk rock film in Carpenter's career and reflects his ethos perfectly. Even the conclusion wallows in its own nihilism. At the end of the movie, Snake tears up the cassette tape that could have saved the world because of the president being a jerk. If a movie could throw up devil horns, Escape from New York would. A year after that, Carpenter teams up with Russell again to create, for my money, the greatest horror film of all time, The Thing. A remake of the Howard Hawks killer space vegetable movie, The Thing is the first of what Carpenter referred to as his Apocalypse Trilogy, 
a movie as much about paranoia and distrust of one's fellow human as it is about the titular alien monster. With a smorgasbord of cutting-edge practical effects supplied by Robotine, a great cast of character actors led by Kurt Russell as the weary hero McCready, and a Carpenter score enhanced by the presence of veteran Inyo Morricone, what could go wrong? Well, pretty much everything as it turns out, at least critically and financially speaking. The movie was released to disastrous reviews. Critics called it instant junk and the quintessential moron movie of the 80s. Carpenter was actually fired from his current job, at the time an adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter, when The Thing was released to poor box office and reviews. Now, there are lots of studies about why it did so poorly, and I encourage you to seek them out. For our purposes, it's important to note here that Carpenter thought he had created something special, which he had, and the world of movies kicked him squarely in the junk for it. He never fully recovered. Of The Thing, Carpenter said in 2008, I take every failure hard. The one I took the hardest was The Thing. My career would have been different if that had been a big hit. The movie was hated, even by science fiction fans. They thought that I had betrayed some kind of trust, and the piling on was insane. Even the original movie's director, Christian Nyby, was dissing me. Now, he did get a Stephen King project of his own with his next film in 1983, Christine. Unlike his previous films, Carpenter said later that this was a job, not a personal project, but something he needed to do to get his mojo back. And it's a pretty good movie. The cinematography from Donald Morgan in particular is very good, and Carpenter's score is solid. Still, it feels like an off-note, and almost ran in Carpenter's body of work. In 1984, Carpenter took another swipe at finding a way out of his perceived genre prison. He directed Starman, a movie starring Jeff Bridges as an alien who goes cross-country with Indiana Jones' girlfriend to get a ride back to his home in space. It did well critically and alright commercially, and Bridges got an Oscar nomination out of the deal, but it didn't make Carpenter the mainstream commodity he always wanted to be, or certainly believed he deserved to be. In 1986, Carpenter made the more personal Big Trouble in Little China, a brilliant bit of sci-fi and fantasy absurdity. He was brought into the Hollywood circles again and given $25 million to make Big Trouble in Little China, but the producers bankrolling the project didn't get Carpenter, or, it seems, the script they'd bought. Even though Kurt Russell was brought in to star as Jack Burton, Jack Burton isn't the hero of the movie. Carpenter and Russell were playing on the idea of the sidekick, believing he was the hero, and that's the overarching gag of the movie. Jack Burton fails as often as he succeeds, and it's really Wang Chi, as played by Dennis Dunn, who is the true protagonist. The movie plays with Chinese stereotypes and is filled with Chinese folklore and digs at the traditional role of the Caucasian hero. Not only did the studio not get these subtler aspects of the film, audiences stayed away in droves. For the moment, Carpenter was done with Hollywood. The next couple would be independently produced films. Starting in 1987, he made Prince of Darkness, the second in his Apocalypse trilogy, it's a grim movie and not always successful, but it's fascinating in his body of work for its nihilism and surrealist imagery. The idea sprang from Carpenter's interest in combining the scientific and the religious, and I encourage you to give it a look if you like offbeat horror, 
or movies that feature Alice Cooper as a homeless dude. Then, in 1988, he delivered unto the world the majesty of They Live, starring wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper as a drifter who stumbles upon a global alien conspiracy thanks to some righteous sunglasses, it's a fantastic piece of satire on American consumer culture. And it has a great scene of Roddy Piper and Keith David wrestling in an alley for about 20 minutes. It is pure Carpenter, a little silly, high-minded, and delivering two big middle fingers to the culture that continually turned its back on him in favor of the mundane and the mediocre. Unsurprisingly, the movie was not a commercial hit. Carpenter, it seems, only knew how to make cult films. About They Live, Carpenter said, Those who go to the movies in vast numbers these days don't want to be enlightened. After that, Carpenter went away for a few years. He got into video games, which is a passion he retains and talks a lot about, and let the world sit with the tremendous output of the previous dozen years. Like David Bowie, it takes a while to catch up to Carpenter's genius. I'm still waiting to like Tin Machine. In 1992, Carpenter returned to Hollywood, and we finally come to Memoirs of an Invisible Man. The original novel by Harry F. Saint was still unfinished when William Morris, a famous Hollywood agent, gave it to Chevy Chase. Chase had been on a comedy role with movies like National Lampoon's Vacation, Fletch, Spies Like Us, Funny Farm, the list goes on. Well, his interest made Hollywood interested, and there was a bidding war for the story. A bidding war is, of course, when a bunch of studios all try to outspend each other for the rights to a story. In this case, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I'm not joking. Anyway, it was packaged with Chase as the star, comedy directing star Ivan Reitman of Ghostbusters, Stripes, and Twins fame, not to mention Legal Eagles, and William Goldman, who had just scored big with the adaptation of his own novel, The Princess Bride, to adapt the book Memoirs of an Invisible Man. That sounds like a movie I really want to watch. Unfortunately, it's not the movie Chevy Chase wanted to star in. Like Carpenter, Chase had plenty of wins under his belt, but the vacation films had become a case of diminishing returns, and the sequel to Fletch was nothing to write home about either. Just like the success of Earth's director, he needed a hit too, something to kick off the next phase of his career. And he didn't want a broad comedy, which is exactly what Reitman was known for, so Reitman was out. Chase was demanding of William Goldman, too, who left the project with the Goldman-worthy line, quote, I'm too old and too rich for this shit. Richard Donner was brought in as a replacement director, mostly due to his work with big effects films, which this most certainly would be, and he lasted about eight months before he bailed. Finally, someone suggested John Carpenter, and Chevy Chase approved. Chevy Chase then had to convince the studio that Carpenter could actually make the movie, and Carpenter, by all accounts, had to convince himself that he wanted to do another studio film. The last time he tangled with the studio was Big Trouble in Little China, and he had not enjoyed that process even a little bit. But he believed he could get a more dramatic performance out of Chase, and so he started working with the new screenwriters, Dana Olson and Robert Collector, to create a more character-centric film, a sort of invisible man meets North by Northwest kind of story. And for better or worse, Carpenter got his dramatic performance from Chase, but the film landed with a thud. It made a paltry $14 million at the box office, and the most accurate review at the time I found was from Desson Howe at the Washington Post, who said, quote, 
Memoirs of an Invisible Man isn't a movie. It's an identity crisis. The previews would have you believe it's a zany comedy, but the jokes are too few and far between. And if it's a comedy, why is John Carpenter directing it? This is the man who did Halloween. If Memoirs wants to get serious, why is Chevy Chase in the lead? This is the man who started National Lampoon's European Vacation. End quote. Notably, only this movie and Carpenter's first film, the sci-fi comedy Dark Star, did not appear with Carpenter's name above the title. Carpenter said of Memoirs that it was an audience-friendly, non-challenging movie, which just meant that Carpenter himself didn't care about the movie he was making. Not really. See, Carpenter's best work was predicated on the idea that he was challenging the viewer somehow, assaulting their sensibilities, or skewering their rigid beliefs. If he couldn't do that, what the hell was the point? And when audiences and critics perpetually failed to reward him with praise or box office returns, why would he bother? But Carpenter, whether he'd admit to it or not, I think has had the last laugh on those naysayers from the 80s when he was doing his finest work. After the lackluster Ghosts of Mars, Carpenter stopped making movies until 2010's The Ward, and he hasn't made another since. But in the years since he stopped working, his filmography has become legendary, and he is widely considered the most consistently great horror director of all time. I dare you to find another whose work has been so influential in genre cinema outside of the aforementioned Hitchcock. Stranger Things stole his music and lens flares. The Strangers Pray at Night even stole his trademark font recently. You can see Carpenter's cinematic DNA everywhere. What I love most about John Carpenter, though, is the old man who gives a shit attitude he has these days. When someone complained about the remakes of his films, the god-awful The Fog being the most egregious example, Carpenter said, quote, I love it if they're going to pay me money. If they pay me, it's wonderful. If they don't pay me, I don't care. I think it's unfair if they don't pay me. I think everyone should pay me. Why not? I'm an old guy now and I need money. Send me money. End quote. He seems to be getting on pretty well these days, though, having developed a new career in his latter years, playing original music at sold-out shows across the world. He plays his music, chain smokes, and bitches about the state of the world while playing some video games and watching his basketball. In his self-imposed retirement, such as it is, he has done it the way he's done everything, however the hell he wants to. And that is the definition of punk rock. And now, boils and ghouls, it's one of this master's worst films, and the one he couldn't be bothered to put his name above the title for, 1992's Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Pick 6 Movies. Uh, of course, we are talking about John Carpenter's not-so-seminal film, <laughs> Memoirs of an Invisible Man. One could call it a Chevy Chase vehicle. Uh, I'm Bo Ranstall. With me, as always, the delightful, the talented, the beautiful Chad Cooper. Hello, Bo. Real quick, before we jump into a discussion of the movie, which we will do uh, sooner rather than later here, I'm curious, when did you first see Memoirs of an Invisible Man? Did you see it in the theater? I saw saw it at a uh, Cinemark 99 cent theater in Knoxville, Tennessee. You could argue you overpaid. 
by probably a, a penny or two. Yeah, th- this is a solid 58 cent film, <laughs> if you ask me. I don't think I saw this in the theater. I feel like I saw this one when it hit home video, but I was pretty quick to snatch it up. I've always thought that this movie was certainly in the bottom tier of John Carpenter films. But when I think of John Carpenter movies, Memoirs of an Invisible Man almost never comes up. <laughs> you know, he, d- he didn't put his name on it because he knew the studio would fight him over it. And he wasn't really claiming the movie in that way. He didn't do the score. He didn't write it. It was just him doing a gig and hoping to finally get a little of that Hollywood cheddar, which didn't work out yet again because he was perpetually not able to score a big Hollywood movie. Not he could get one, he just couldn't land it in terms of the time. Your introduction reminded me a lot of stand-up comedians who come in and they want to antagonize the audience to the point of both hating them and loving them. I think about Bill Hicks. Yes. The audience wants to like you, but there are some stand-up comedians that just almost want the audience to hate them. Like, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And in your introduction, there was a lot of that of, of dealing with Carpenter's use of cinema as a means of social commentary, or as you aptly put it, giving the finger to the studio and the audience. And it's really this antagonistic relationship between auteur and audience. It's what makes him so great. There's a line I didn't include in the introduction where he was talking about the movie Starman and he quotes uh, one of the writers of Starman and the line goes, human beings are at their best when things are at their worst. And in the interview, Carpenter quotes that line and says, it's not true. It's what I wish were true, but that's not how human beings are. And to me, that is that is Carpenter to a T. He is someone who wants to believe the best in people and then is dragged back down to earth by their basic shittiness in his own eyes at the very least. Like when the thing came out and he thought like, I've done it. I've created a masterpiece of horror cinema. Which, in fact, he had done, I argue. And then everyone in the world was like, fuck you! (laughs) And he was like, that's it, I'm done. The rest of his movies never come close to being as brilliant as that movie was. The year that The Thing came out, E.T. came out, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan came out... Blade Runner opened the same day. You're like, man, this movie almost never stood a chance, but it's also better than any of those movies in my estimation. But we're not here to talk about good John Carpenter movies. There are a bunch of them. And as you heard in the introduction, loyal listeners, any of those movies are worth your time. Any of those movies I mentioned are 20 times better than the movie we're talking about tonight. This is John Carpenter with his feet up directing a movie that was a bad idea to begin with in which Chevy Chase decides he's going to be the dramatic heavy in a film. No, he's not. That's what he thought. Let me start off. One of the things that I noted in going through this movie, and and I went back and rewatched the, as as I've done for all of these films in this particular season, of really doing a compare and contrast between the original Universal monster movie and then the remake. 
The Invisible Man as a movie historically has been a device to show off essentially special effects. In the original film, there are scenes where you have characters where clothing is moving around on its own. A bicycle is being pedaled without a person on it. And it's really just a showcase for very innovative special effects. I mean, is that, is that a fair assessment? It, it's certainly bolstered by that, although I would argue the original Claude Rains film is also a story about the the cost of absolute power of, of one degree. Like, he goes crazy because he believes he can kind of do anything with this newfound invisibility and there's a great scene where like the horde is coming to get him it's when he's all bandaged up and they're like the cop is telling him hey don't you know who i am like you you've got to answer for things he's like do know who you are do you know who i am you've all made me go crazy peeking in keyholes and he starts like unwrapping himself it's a really cool creepy scene and it reminded me of woody woodpecker like when he robs the bank and just starts throwing a money around he's like <laughs> right but claude rains gives this kind of unhinged performance in the movie but he's not in the movie <laughs> He's just voiceovering the whole time. Half the half the movies these days have a CGI character that doesn't really exist. Like Vin Diesel ain't in Guardians of the Galaxy none, and he's still getting a check out of that thing. Could you make an Invisible Man movie today? Sure, but I think you could do a remake of the Invisible Man that captured the spirit of the original, and and it would be kind of creepy and weird and unsettling the way that the original is i think the original is a good movie i rewatched it recently and it's so over the top it's all special effects and, and again i enjoyed that part of it it didn't feel like a horror film and it didn't feel like it had the weightiness of this psychological examination of what it would be like to be invisible to be there but not there you know do you exist if no one can see you and i think that that's what a more contemporary interpretation of this could be of how do mm -hmm. you deal with with those different types of issues. Okay, so we open up on some narration from Chevy Chase, which there are a bunch of people, uh, there are helicopters flying around the city. It turns out we're in San Francisco. People with night vision goggles on, looking for somebody. When all of these people are wearing this headgear, they're looking around and they're seeing essentially body heat of other people. Which doesn't make sense to me because they're looking for an invisible man. But how do you know which one of these people is invisible and which one of them is just a regular person? Right. Well, you see the heat image and then you take your goggles off real quick. And you're like, oh, oh, yeah, no, that's just it. I turn into Norm MacDonald all of a sudden. Like, oh, oh, no, just a guy right there. And, uh, yeah, a visible uh, guy. Um, but yeah, so... <laughs> They're all looking for the Invisible Man, who it turns out is Chevy Chase, who is hiding in a camera store. I think it's a crazy Eddie's, because it, <laughs> it's definitely not a Best Buy. Oh, no, this was well before Best Buy's, I would assume. It's full of VCRs and phone answering machines <laughs> and, and other technology that we don't need anymore. This is a store that is now basically just a garage sale. And through his voiceover, our hero, who is named Nick... He says, I'm not sick. I'm not crazy. I'm just invisible. 
Yes. And as we were soon to find out, he is a colossal asshole. He's a giant jerk. And in fact, one of my early notes here was when it comes up on the screen that when the credits uh, let us know, hey, this is based on a book. I wondered how close to the book this movie is. Or if it even matters. The book sounds much more grounded in interesting than this movie is. Because this movie is grounded in just awful. As Nick is trying to explain his story, he is trying to convince the viewer, hey, this is an invisible man story. And so he picks up like a pencil and an apple or something and makes them float around. He's like, oh, woo. He's like, well, maybe that's not convincing. How about this? And then he throws some chewing gum into his mouth, which I actually think this is kind of a neat effect where he chews up the gum and then blows a bubble. And you see that a mouth is doing that because of the shape of the uh, chewing gum as it, you know, pops and, and takes the form of a partial chin. But he chews it four times and then blows a bubble. For anyone who's ever chewed gum, you got to chew it a lot longer than that that's just basic science you can't go chomp 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 and blow a bubble it doesn't work like that not unless you're dealing with big league chew which is almost pre-chewed to begin with Mm, you're right i now that i say it i could really go for some big league chew (laughs) and by the way kudos to the makers of big league chew for introducing me to the wonders of tobacco you know it was those same assholes that made the candy cigarettes they were like we're getting a bunch of shit over this and they're like well what if we take chewing gum and put it in a pouch like chewing tobacco sure it's it's like candy kids you can't buy these till you're 18 but go ahead start coveting them now (laughs) what do you want to be when you grow up johnny i want to be a smoker We cut to Nick pre-invisibility because Invisible Nick says, yeah, hey, uh, Fats Man, let me tell you my story. Mm -hmm. He's Visible Nick a few days earlier is booking a room at a ski lodge when his secretary, as played by Rosalind Chow, enters and is giving him this long list of appointments of like, hey, you've got this and you've got this and you got lunch with this guy. He's like, yeah, I don't want to do any of that. I know it's my job and all, but is there some way out of that? And she says, well, you've got this big report that you've got to give our boss. And his boss at that point comes in and is like, hey, what about that big report you were supposed to give me? And Chevy Chase lies to his boss and says, yeah, I've been thinking about that. And I really think we should invest in whatever the fuck it was. Kathy is clearly the one who's running the show. His secretary, yes. assistant, whatever. And she she feeds him all the information he needs to know. So his boss comes in and says like, well, Nick, you are here which means that nick is one of those guys that's constantly ducking out of work to go fuck off you know somewhere else at the the halfway point of the day god bless him (laughs) and yeah and mick nick makes up some bullshit based on kathy's insightful comments that kind of gets him out of i don't know his boss's inquiry using some sort of weird word jumble and then kathy praises nick for being quote the biggest bullshit artist end quote she's ever seen smile swoon who would be proud of that that is shameful we have now learned that nick is incompetent at his job he is rarely to be found at the office and he is a liar so hey everybody we're off to a good start who doesn't love this hero huh if if that didn't sell it to you he at this point after he tells his boss a blatant lie about 
how he read this report and is recommending that they invest money into something that he doesn't know shit about that could cost the company potentially millions of dollars and lots of jobs. One would assume, yes. So he decides he's going to fuck off for the day because he's put in a full day of lying to people. Jumps in the <laughs> jumps in the elevator and Rosalind Chow then reminds him because uh, he's saying something about like, hey, you know, just hold all my calls and if anyone calls for me, tell them I'm gone. She's like, nobody's going to call for you because you don't have anybody and no one loves you. And it's like, oh yeah, well, thanks movie for reminding me that not only is this guy a liar and a and has a poor work ethic but he is undeserving of love all right i guess we're gonna hitch our wagon to this character for the next 90 minutes she also reminds him that he has to cover for a co-worker the next day at a presentation at magnoscopics so this is one of those workplaces where one asshole is cutting out of work and then getting another asshole to cover for him right it's the reason that a lot of like punch clocks these days have cameras can you do me a solid can you cover for me tomorrow at magnoscopics i'm gonna be hitting the the back nine a little early tomorrow with raj (laughs) fuck you i've never punched somebody in i've never covered for anybody somebody's like hey will you tell them i'm gonna do this like fuck you i'm not doing that there was a a guy i worked with uh years ago when i was working at a restaurant that was his line was be a guy hey be a guy do me a favor i want you to be a guy real quick will you give me five dollars come on be a guy and and uh, and I would give him $5 because I want to be a guy. When I was very young, I worked at a movie theater and there was a retired security guard from New York and he was working there and he had this bald head and, and he had glasses that pinched in on the side. You know, the look I'm talking about, like your fat head yeah, yeah, is yeah. too big for your glasses. And he called everybody um, who was a, a male. He referred to them all as guy because he didn't bother to remember any of our names. Like, hey, guy. How's it Why going? would you? How you doing, guy? What's up, guy? So one day, I'm like 16, 17 years old, and I'm sweeping up popcorn at this movie theater. And uh, he sees me, and he was like, hey, guy, you want a piece of advice? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take advice, sir. And he, he looks at me, and he goes, don't take shit from anybody, all right? Don't fucking forget that ever. And I never have. But I'll tell you, my favorite piece of advice, uh, because let's avoid talking about this movie a little longer. My favorite piece of advice I've ever gotten, and, I, I, and I'm a big believer in it, so listeners take this one to heart, is never take a no from someone who can't give you a yes. That's my favorite <laughs> piece of advice. Because it's, it's totally true, and it, it's helped me in life a number of times. <laughs> like, hey, who, who am I talking to? Yeah, yeah, let me talk to your boss. You ain't got nothing. Like, you can't make a deal. Uh, I don't know what deal I'd be making in this scenario, but say, uh, maybe I'm buying a car or a, a apron. One of them things. Hold on, that's your scale of things you're buying? Cars and aprons? Yeah, those are the two big purchases I've made recently. One of One of them took two weeks of research, and it's not the one you would think. How how many pockets do I need? My balls have never felt more protected when I'm frying chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I got one of them x-ray lead aprons to cook. It's heavy as shit, but I know nothing's getting through it. So Nick, yeah, Nick heads to the Academy Club, which Nick states in his voiceover is, quote, one of the last private men's clubs in San Francisco, which, <laughs> right, which 
which makes him sound worse. I wasn't sure if that meant that they had a strict all whites policy or if he was going to go inside and it was just going to be filled with this sweaty sea of shirtless sculpted men having the times of their life. It's yeah, it's not a Roman bathhouse. It's just the kind of place that ought to be illegal these days, but isn't. Wait, are you talking about the bathhouse or the racist white guy club? No, no, no. Bathhouses are fine. You want to go get sucked by, you know, an elderly gentleman. Wearing nothing but a towel and a smile. I'm all for that. <laughs> good for you. You're, you know what? You're one of the good ones. Don't take any shit from anybody, Poe, all right? <laughs> so, <laughs> as if to make the character of Nick Holloway even more unlikable, not only is he in a whites-only gentleman's club, <laughs> after lying to his boss and ditching work early... He's also going to illegally gamble a little bit. And he's an alcoholic because he's sitting at the bar and this is not his first scotch. There is a line he has uh, in a little bit that is one of the most outrageous alcoholism lines that goes completely unacknowledged for the rest <laughs> of the film. <laughs> but yeah, so as, as he's sitting there tying one on because, hey, it's a Wednesday, am I right? <laughs> and- <laughs> Michael McKeon shows up and disappoints you because you remember like, oh yeah, he was great in Spinal Tap. I wish I was watching Spinal Tap. He was great on Laverne and Shirley. Michael McKeon is generally, like this movie legitimately has a great cast, Chevy Chase excluded, and Daryl Hannah, like if you pull them out, it's sort of the Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder of this movie, where it's like, hey, if we yank them out, then your cast is... Michael McKeon, Stephen Tobolowski, and Sam Neill, Patricia Heaton in an early role, and all those are good actors. I'm of the Paula Poundstone mindset, uh, which is something that you hear, geez, just about every day. (laughs) (laughs) But she once said... Like at an early stand-up special, like I'm talking probably around this time, probably earlier than that, than this, as a matter of fact. But what she once said, Daryl Hannah is a very pretty lady who can't act. I don't. I'm not saying she shouldn't be in movies. I'm just saying if she is in movies, you should just show her picture in the bottom corner of the screen and let somebody else read the lines. Who is a prettier person, worse actress, Daryl Hannah or Andy McDowell? Andy McDowell is a worse actress. Agreed. Because in Muppets from Space, there are scenes where puppets are emoting better than her in the same scene. She almost ruins groundhog day in a couple of scenes she ruins four weddings and a funeral and i think she's maybe the star of that movie yeah if it weren't for you grant that movie would be unwatchable it's raining i didn't notice uh she yeah she's atrocious (laughs) daryl hannah at least seems like she's not a great actress she doesn't have any kind of range or anything but she's not aggressively bad she's just not good eddie mcdowell Sounds like she is straining to remember the English language. (laughs) Nick's friend, George, played by the incomparable Michael McKeon. Right, who has to convince him. He's like, hey, come meet some friends. And Chevy Chase is like, how about you go fuck yourself? His friend comes over and says, hey, why don't you come join us? And Nick, who's an asshole, immediately tells his friend George loudly, hey, how's how's your spastic colon? And then Nick tells George, his friend, that he's writing his resignation and that he's going to start a foster home for poor kids 
girls mostly, late teens, early 30s. And this is classic Chevy Chase comedic delivery. It's meant Mm -hmm. as a joke, you know, to be funny. Because what kind of a loser would open a facility to help poor children? Fuck those assholes. Nobody would do that. But instead, he takes this pathetic act of kindness and instead embraces the idea of, I don't know, sex trafficking? At the very least, George's friend all but drags Nick, our asshole protagonist, over to join him and his friends uh, at a table in this all-whites club. And it's here that Nick meets Alice, uh, the aforementioned Daryl Hannah, and she is a documentary filmmaker. Which, aside from Ken Burns, is that a real job? Right. Michael Moore? Nah, Michael Moore is more of a provocateur. Those are not documentaries. I like Michael Moore, but that's to come in and say this is a documentary. No. What about Errol Morris, who did the Thin Blue Line at all? Okay, so there there are two people who are professional documentarians. How can that be your job? Right. Which, if like if you're listening to this and you're a documentarian, God bless you. Let me know. Also, yeah, send us an email because I don't believe you. <laughs> I want to see. I want your IMDb page. Also, when Michael McCann is getting Nick, Chevy Chase, to come to the table in the first place, Chevy Chase is like, no, go fuck yourself. I don't want to meet your stupid friends. And Michael McCann says, shut up, dummy. Look, there's this single blonde girl. Maybe you could. Yeah, you could. You might be able to fuck her. Right. And at that point, he's like, oh, well, now you're talking my language. I only point that out to say yet again how this movie seems to go out of its way to make him as unlikable a dude as possible before asking the audience to feel some sympathy for him. And we're going to raise those stakes even more uh, here in a minute. So George, Nick's friend, brings him over to the table. And here George's, I think George's wife is there. And um, she looks just like Annie Potts from everything Annie Potts was ever in. But it is Patricia Heaton from Everybody Loves Raymond. I didn't recognize her at first when I watched this, but upon repeated viewings and IMD being, it's like, oh, there she is. So Alice, who is Daryl Hannah, uh, tells this group of people that she also went to law school. So we now know that Alice is smart and Alice quit her job to work at a public television station to make documentaries. So that means she's what more altruistic, maybe. How do you and which again, I don't know how you live in San Francisco on a documentary filmmaker salary. I don't know if maybe documentary filmmaker is just code for. I don't know, classy porno or something. And (laughs) and in in this conversation, Alice overhears Nick and George discussing their gambling addiction. And then Alice chimes in about who's going to win at sports. And so she's smart and she's moral and she's subjectively pretty and she likes gambling. I mean, sports. And so she's the perfect girl for Nick. And then we see Nick and Alice and they're sitting face to face talking to one another. And then Nick just first off, I don't like Chevy Chase. There are certain roles that Chevy chases in. I think he's fantastic in Fletch. I think there are moments in other movies where he is a very talented comedic actor. But if I look at the oeuvre of Chevy Chase, it's a lot more misses than it is hits. And this is a great big miss. Yes. Also, the fact that he tries to play it a little too straight. His delivery always sounds like he's a half step away from a joke. And that's just because you have grown accustomed watching Chevy Chase to know that he is going to deliver a joke kind of unexpectedly that's sort of his his gimmick. 
Yeah. Is that the joke is going to come out of nowhere and it's going to be very deadpan. And, and, and again, that's great. And when he delivers that type of performance, it really works well, but I don't think that it doesn't work more than it does. And in this scene, we get a very rapid fire flirtatious courtship between Nick and Alice. And there's a scene where they're nose to nose and Nick says, I hate TV. And Alice says, me too, which she works in public television. So what the fuck are you talking about? And then he says, I love jazz. And then he says, I love skiing. And she says, I love the ocean and I love the woods. So they like all climates and all geographic locations. And then he says, I like blonde hair. And she says, I like garlic, which I don't know if this is supposed to endear us to them or to find it charming that they're getting to know each other, but it doesn't really work. No. And so logically in the next scene, we see the two of them in the ladies bathroom making out. By making out, it's a half step away from insertion. It is. It is. They're, they're really getting into it. I want to say that I once described the worst men's room that I'd ever been into to my wife. She immediately countered with the worst ladies room that she'd ever been in. It wasn't even a close comparison. It was a KO to my description of the men's room. It was one of the most vile, disgusting things I'd ever heard. The thought of making out in a public bathroom is only surpassed by the thought of eating a meal in a public toilet well that's just you know you man i mean some of us have to get an erection somehow and public bathrooms are how it happens how did they get in this bathroom because i want to break this down did she give nick bedroom eyes i mean bathroom eyes and then they knowingly went in together or did Alice get up to go into the bathroom first and then Nick just on his own followed her into the bathroom? You know, I, I bet how it went was, I like blonde hair. I like garlic. I like finding public toilets with a locker. I like taking a shit in 30 seconds. I like walking into a public restroom where the water's already yellow. <laughs> do you Do you want to fuck? Yes. If he follows her into the bathroom without her giving him, you know, like a nice wink and a nod, that's arguably sexual assault. As soon as she walked into this club, that was implicit consent, Chad. <laughs> that's how this club works. <laughs> I, I kind of like to hope that Alice is in the bathroom, like with her hands braced on the wall, feet off the ground, just tearing up the shitter, like, like Harry and Dumb and Dumber, just blowing it out. And he walks in there and it's just like, Oh, yeah. He just busts in like John Wayne in the Cryot Man. <laughs> Her hair is blowing because of the dryer. So you think that Nick just kind of creepily made his way into the ladies' room and pushed himself on her, leading to this drunken makeout session? I think she said, hey, uh, I, I need to powder my nose real quick, and excused herself, and he somehow ran around the bar to get into the stall ahead of her, so that when she opened the door, he was already exposed. <laughs> is this even uh, remotely romantic? Again, at the end of this movie, these two shitheads end up together. Like, <laughs> as they explain to their kids, like, how did you and mom meet? Well, we got drunk at this elite rich white men's only club. And your dad followed me into the bathroom and sexually assaulted me. Right. He's like, uh, honey, I've got this. Hang on. <clears throat> He's the biggest bullshit artist I've ever met. Smile swoon. <laughs> I once got busy in a Burger King bathroom. <laughs> R.E. Uh, previous episode. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> oh, you give me an opportunity to do a little digital underground. It's going to happen. <laughs> right, yeah. Somewhere in there, there was a little shock G. So after they get done almost fucking in a public ladies' room, in a gentleman's club, and I use that term in the most god-awful possible way, they sit back down at the table. She gives them the the little code of like, hey, wait here for a second. I'll go out first so we can throw the sin off. She goes out. He follows shortly behind. And then she excuses herself and says like, oh, I've got to meet somebody. And Chevy Chase immediately reads this as like, oh, she is definitely down to fuck. When she excuses herself, he's like, oh, yeah, I, I got to go too, guys. I'll uh, I'll see her home. And then he's like, so you want to just go get some dinner or how about I just give it to you? And she's like, no, asshole. I really have to go meet somebody. This wasn't some ruse. And he's like, oh, okay, well, sorry. I totally read the room wrong there. Then the most honest words of the movie are her asking, am I going to regret meeting you? And him saying, you already do? Yeah, that feels right. And then in voiceover, we hear hear Nick say in a way it was all Alice's fault if I hadn't met her that night and if she hadn't been so incredibly beautiful I wouldn't have gone back to the bar and drank myself silly <laughs> right. this entire movie is Alice's fault for just being an attractive bystander that presumes for a second that he wouldn't have gone back to the bar to get fucked up if she had been say a four instead of a ten because it, it was going to end up being her fault no matter what <laughs> He shows up at his appointment at Magnoscopic Labs or whatever, Muppet Labs for all intents and purposes. Right, the next morning, covering for whatever co-worker asshole that couldn't make it here. Right, that had probably covered for him at some point, so he can't say no. He shows up to this appointment, hungover as shit. He's wearing sunglasses, drinking water, he's got an Egg McMuffin, he's doing everything he can to offset this hangover. When Nick walks into the Magnoscopic building, he literally walks into the magnoscopic building i mean it's classic chevy chase grabbing one door that opens and then clunking into the other door on the other side which you touched on this in your intro why is chevy chase in this movie it's not a comedy it could slash should be a thriller with a lot of interesting special effects there are moments where you get to the precipice of okay chevy chase is going to deliver some comedy sometimes he does and it's inappropriate sometimes it's anticipated and he doesn't but it's expected okay there's sort of a a void there it's just this tepid version of what you've seen chevy chase do in other movies right but remember this is chevy chase wanting to make this dramatic turn like he wanted to do essentially what bill murray had done with something like the razor's edge but you can't do that that's like if if jim carrey said i want to make the majestic But for the majority of my dialogue, I'm going to talk out of my ass cheeks. You either go all or nothing. And I don't think The Razor's Edge is a good movie. Don't get me wrong. But at no point in that movie does Bill Murray throw on the Bill Murray smarmy charm. No, there's no Cinderella story. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no point is he like... You know, I know our friend just committed suicide, but uh, I think uh, we got. I got something that'll really take the edge off there, Ty. Pool or a pond? You know, we could uh, we could go swimming. Right. You know, forget about all of our troubles. Uh, deal with some existential crisis. Now, I mean, there's none of that stuff in Razor's Edge, and even in Groundhog Day, when he does kind of heavy moments in that movie, he pulls it off. And I would argue that even in something like Scrooge, like when he gets emotional, he abandons the comedy to have those emotional moments. 
moments. Chevy Chase always feels like he's on the cusp. There's not that on and off switch with his comedy like there is with Bill Murray. Him running into the door in this scene is like, well, then I expect you to be goofy and slapsticky at other times in this movie. There are moments in this movie where it tries to deal explicitly and somewhat realistically with what it would be like to be invisible and not just the silly part of that, but the desperation that it can bring. And it doesn't ever land because you're always expecting him to, you know, say like, well, and I'll have a steak sandwich and a steak sandwich. It, it just, he does not belong in this movie. He bought this property for himself. He wanted to make this movie. This is the movie that he probably thought he wanted to make, like tonally even. This is probably what Chevy Chase thought was the right approach, which is you give the film the drama that it needs, but also give the audience a little taste of what they came to a Chevy Chase movie to see. It just doesn't work. Those ingredients don't go together. It's like, you know, putting vinegar in the brownie batter. So Nick goes inside, magnoscopic. And immediately ditches the symposium. Like, he's supposed to go to the symposium on magnets or some shit. And immediately, is like, looks at the guy beside him. And is like, hey, call me when something important happens. Am I right? And then just fucks off. He kind of, like, falls asleep. Uh, passes out. And then a few minutes later, he wakes up. I mean, uh, comes to. He leaves the presentation to go take a piss he walks past this star trek inspired command center in this building with a bunch of buttons and bleeps and boobops and radar screens and shit like that and there's like eight science people in the room and you can tell because they're all wearing like lab coats and they got a bunch of pins in their pockets and shit like that nick asks the head nerd where the men's room is and then the head nerd tells nick where the toilet is and then the head nerd accidentally spills some coffee on his computer keyboard which sets off this chain reaction of disaster that includes smoke and fire yeah and now when he has posed this question nick can never say again that he never hurt anyone with his drinking so nick wanders to go find the toilet and he finds a sauna tucked away in the corner of this office building because nick is a self-righteous asshole he just goes in and lays down in this sauna of a building that he has never been to in his life right nick is wearing a three-piece suit and a tie what kind of person would go lay down in a sauna what would you look like if you came out of this sauna with this many layers every stitch of your clothing would just be saturated with your sweat you would look drier if you had just jumped into a swimming pool and you would arguably smell better also what is his friend who he is covering for going to think when he's like so what happened at that symposium he's like i don't know listen i gotta tell you you may not be surprised by this but i was drunk i'll tell you uh, what I did is I went and I took a nap. And I was like, boop, tired. And so Chevy Chase, yeah, he goes to this sauna, just takes a cat nap. Meanwhile, the chain reaction he set off in the Star Trek room is getting out of hand. And there's total chaos and all the nerdlingers have to get evacuated along with the rest of the building. It flares white as people are being led, you know, led quickly from the building. And we cut from that to uh, Sam Neill in potentially another movie where he is being questioned by Congress. Congress about his geographical nearness to several political assassinations. Yeah, they say that he was somehow involved in someone named Mendoza getting thrown off the 21st floor of the Hotel Presidente. Mendoza! That's all I'm thinking. <laughs> 
Sam Neill is a good actor. He can be very sinister. He can be very charming. Uh, in real life, the guy seems like a hoot. Everything I've seen from the guy, it's like pictures of his New Zealand farm and him posing with llamas and shit. He seems like a good guy. Sam Neill. You got to cast him in one column or the other. Sam Neill, good guy, bad guy. What are you going to put him in? Oh, villain. He makes a, a fantastic villain. He's always a bad guy. In fact, he should have never been cast as Alan Grant in Jurassic Park. He did a, a fine job, but he should have not been in that. He is a much better sinister prick than he is a charming leading man. Even in Jurassic Park, the scenes with him and the kid, what makes that work is that it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. It doesn't come naturally. Have you seen Hunt for the Wilder People. Is that the sequel to Land of the Lost? It should be, but no, it is a film by uh, Taika Waititi, the guy who directed uh, What We Do in the Shadows and Thor Ragnarok. Sam Neill plays Alan Grant, essentially, only much older. It's a really charming movie about this little fat New Zealand kid that comes to live with Sam Neill and his wife, and Sam Neill's wife dies and leaves the fat kid alone with Sam Neill, and they take off into the wilderness together. It's it really very funny movie but it's that same kind of thing where the dynamic is he has zero interest in this little fat kid yet somehow is forced to deal with him and it makes it, it makes for a, a good deal of comedy you know <laughs> laughs are had uh the heart grows three sizes and whatnot <laughs> but in this movie we find out that sam neil was once a station chief codenamed scorpion <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hank Scorpion, yes. He's been involved in all sorts of shady international dealings, which we then get introduced to Stephen Tobolowsky. Oh, God, I'm so glad to see him show up in anything. So he shows up and tells Sam Neill that uh, Sam Neill is needed in California because something's gone down at Magnoscopics, which I just want to say real quick, Magnoscopics is the great name for a fake movie tech company. It's it's definitely no Cyberdyne, but it's still pretty damn good. I would argue the best is Wayland you Tani from Alien. Tobolowski shows up and, and tells Sam Neill on an airfield, forget the dog and pony show, forget the dog and pony show uh, at, at the Congress that Sam Neill's like, well, what is it uh, that you need me to do? And Tobolowski says, it's not what it is. It's what it isn't. Followed by one of the most uncomfortable pregnant pauses I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> Where they just look at each other for a second as the scene starts to fade. And then Tobolowski's like, come on. And then they start to walk off. <laughs> I was like, did you get that? <laughs> and it, I, again, one of those things where I, I was like, I wonder if that is just Carpenter being like, look at this piece of shit. How about this? I'm going to let this go on too. Like, I'm going to hold this scene until the actor improvs the way out of the scene. And it's going to be uncomfortable for everyone, including the people watching it. If this movie is called memoirs of an invisible man why are there any scenes that don't include him shouldn't it be 100 a first person account of things that are only about him i mean shouldn't we only see things that he's witnessed because we're getting a bunch of stuff around the globe that he has no knowledge of but also who cares well i do <laughs> i i know you do and i do to an extent <laughs> But most importantly, John Carpenter didn't. At this point in the shooting, he was already thinking about like, ghosts of Jupiter? No. Ghosts of Pluto? No, nah, that sounds stupid. I don't know. There's something there, though. Come on, JC. You got this in you. Dig deep. Right. I already have the score running through my head. Nino no na. Nino no na. Yeah, it's 
I love it though. Oh my god. The score to uh fucking They Live with all the slide guitar in it is one of the greatest things ever. In the next scene, it's my favorite part of this whole movie because it's here where Nick wakes up in the magnoscopic office building and there is this incredible visual. It looks like a real life 3D MC Escher fever dream. Mm -hmm. There is this building that is it's clearly built on a soundstage and it is made of these floating pieces of the building where part of it is visible and part of it isn't and it looks real because it is real yeah if you did this today with cgi your brain would look at this and be like oh that's a bunch of fake computer shit when you watch this movie it looks like a piece of art on a soundstage where actors are interacting with real things this feels like a tangible set that you could go up to and almost in a way feel the walls that aren't there yeah it's very cool in fact one of my favorite bits from this scene is not only the fragments that are floating in air, but they have people putting red tape on the corners of the invisible building. Yeah. Like, this whole thing is, is pretty cool. It's made less cool by the fact that there is an announcer giving exposition to all the people working on the building. <laughs> where it's like, it's like the MASH guy going like, um, attention, the building may still be in flux. There was... Thing with molecules parts have become transparent um the entertainment tonight will be some like it hot come out and see the hilarious antics of marilyn monroe jack lemon <laughs> tony curtis dressed up like ladies do blondes really have more fun <laughs> and then tonight's movie has been mash starring Donald Sutherland. <laughs> One of the greatest moments in cinema history. <laughs> Just pissing all over it. Um, <laughs> so, then there's a guy taking pictures of the invisibility, as I have come to call it. <laughs> I like that. I'm, I'm working on my marketing. As he's taking pictures of the building, at this point, Chevy Chase has woken up. And he's like, oh, what the fuck's going on? And Chevy Chase goes to sit down at a desk. The guy taking the, the pictures of the invisibility sees the chair like lean back. And he's like, what the? There shouldn't be nobody in there. And then he realizes, oh, like, oh, I'm looking at someone who's invisible. And it has gathered a crowd of just bros over to be like, hey, you see this? Ain't that something? So what does Nick do? Nick puts on a hat. Yeah. <laughs> so he puts on a hat and is like, hey, I'm like, realizes that he can't see himself and starts banging on a window asking for help. Sam Neal is there. He's like, ah, put some light up there. They, they get the light trained on the floating hat. And as Chevy Chase is shouting for help, he sees the light and then he turns around and he runs and he ends up not knocking himself out how fast would you have to run into a wall to knock yourself out faster than i'm able i've thought about it in my life where i've literally been clotheslined by a clothesline and 
how much that sucked. Watching Chevy Chase run into a wall and then he clocks himself out. I was just like, man, that seems like bullshit. But it helps us lead to the next scene where Nick is now on a gurney and the bad guys are rolling Nick away. And then one of the henchmen says, as they're taking Nick to, I guess, a lab, this henchman says, they'll be cutting on him and sticking tubes up his ass for years. Why would that happen? Why would the first thing that that come out of this guy's mouth be that they're going to stick tubes up his ass for years? And why would he say no? I know, I had the same question, Chad. Nick pops up at this mention of ass tubes and we get this gag of a, like a sheet rising up with no head and then, so, you know, Nick is away, so he's invisible now. Sam Neill tells the henchman to shut up because he's the boss. And uh, he asks Nick uh, what his name is and Nick says that his name is Harvey. Oh, how dare you i wanted to just turn it off and walk away i i wanted to turn it off and watch harvey in fact there are two little sparks of inspiration in this scene that reminded me of much better movies that'd be i'd rather be watching one of them was harvey which is one of my favorite movies of all time because it is jimmy stewart at his most charming and that is some kind of charming let me tell you like jimmy stewart is charming as a killer in the thin man movies and then you give him an invisible rabbit to act against holy shit and a severe case of alcoholism and a mental disorder yes you put those two together and i want to hug this movie the scene in harvey where he tells the doctors who are trying to take him to the institution to give him the shot that'll make harvey go away when he tells them the story about how he met harvey that is easily the most charming thing i've i think i've ever seen in a movie is that the oh so smart yes or oh so pleasant for many years i was smart I recommend Pleasant. Yes. Ugh. I love Harvey. How dare you memoirs of an invisible man even mention Harvey. So they try to capture Chevy Chase, but he gets away from him by being like all sneaky and invisible. And also is aided by the fact that the building goes all poltergeist, which is the other point in the same scene where I was like, boy, I wish I was watching poltergeist. That's a really good movie, too. In fact, if I watched Harvey and then Poltergeist, now there's a good night. Chevy runs to a food mart that's closed, and he keeps narrating. This is the point where I was like, is this supposed to be kind of noirish? Because it kind of comes across that way, but it never has the gravitas of something like that. And this is where we first see him, sort of the travails of being invisible, where he forgets that he's invisible, and he's trying to flag down a truck and almost gets runs over. How do you forget that you're invisible? I'm because... If you're invisible, like, oh, I've got an idea. I, no one can see me. I'll stand in front of an 18-wheeler and flag them down. I'm perfectly visible, and I don't do that. <laughs> right! So he decides that his way out of this is to weekend at Bernie's a drunk dude to hail a cab... The dude is half passed out and uh, he kind of knocks him out and then uses him to hail a cab and makes his mouth work like Mr. Ed. The cab driver, by the way, was Donald Lee from Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, A little cameo there, which is the third time in about as many minutes that I'm reminded of a much better movie. This one directed by the same guy who directed Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I like this scene where he knocks out the drunk guy and uses him to hail the cab. This should be the whole movie. At no point in this film does Nick use his invisibility to his advantage until maybe the last 18 seconds of the film. Right. There's one other quick moment uh, that happens uh, a few scenes later when he's walking the streets and somebody runs down the sidewalk and grabs a woman's purse. Chevy Chase grabs it from 
the thief and just hands it back to the lady. And it's the same kind of thing of like, oh, that's what this movie should be. I agree. And in that scene, you know what would follow up with that? That thief who stole that old lady's purse and it snatched back and went back to her. He would pull out a knife and stab her to death and steal her money and go buy crack and get high. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. That'd be more of the Escape from New York carpenter. <laughs> but it never does that. Nick just sort of like duty doos through this movie. In this scene, after he hails this cab using this drunk guy, um, Nick makes his way back to his apartment and he closes the curtains, which I guess that's because he doesn't want people to see things floating around. And then we cut back over to Sam Neill, who's talking to Stephen Tobolowski, which thank God he's back oh, in this movie. Yeah. Both of them, just uh, the whole movie could be them chatting with each other and would be way more compelling. My dinner with Tobolowski. Uh. I know it's, you know, don't even envision it. Sam Neill and Stephen Tobolowski, they band together and they say they're going to find Nick because he is the single most valuable intelligence asset on earth. Right. Which I doubt that. I think that he is the single most invisible asshole on earth. <laughs> but it at least provides the friction of the film, the the dramatic arc, which is, again, what this movie ought to be, which is, hey, you get a knucklehead who doesn't deserve this kind of power, who becomes invisible, and he's doing stupid shit like knocking drunks out and, and driving across town on their dime, while the government is trying to capture him and use him for nefarious purposes. In the next scene, speaking of dunderheads and doofuses, Nick is eating Chinese food in his apartment and it's just Chevy Chase being Chevy Chase and he's having trouble finding his own mouth. Put a blindfold on me. Give me uh, some lo mein and some chopsticks. Guess what? That shit's going to be gone in about 42 seconds. I don't have a problem finding my mouth hole. I've done this for my entire life. I'm not going to be like sticking it up my nose. I tried this experiment just this morning with a bowl of Raisin Bran. Not only could I find the bowl with my eyes closed i ate a solid three to four mouthfuls of delicious delicious raisin bran without opening my eyes and had zero problems this isn't just eyes closed like he can see the food and everything and to me that's the problem and maybe it just says more about my fat ass that i'm like if i can see the food i'll get it to my mouth don't worry about that <laughs> once the food goes into nick's belly it gets all digested like a little lightning storm and then it disappears nick sees it and then he throws up and we see it spew out of his mouth but when nick eats food that food turns invisible which leads me to the next question uh -huh. what happens when nick takes a shit right is that invisible right like wouldn't you immediately eat the the nearest can of corn you could find i know this is something we've discussed over the years but I would just grab a, a can of corn niblets and just cram that can down my mouth like fucking Popeye with spinach just to see those niblets float around like, oh man, is it going to go all the way through? This ain't breaking down for nothing. What? Why wouldn't Nick just torment the bad guys in this movie by taking a fresh hot shit and then just leaving it in the bad guy's car? Because the shit would be invisible. It's just baking in the midday sun. They would open their car door and just get knocked over by the stench of shit. And the best part, they could never find it. They would have to just set their cars on fire and walk away. Oh my God, he took an invisible shit. <laughs> they would cry. <laughs> given the amount of bodily fluids that you can produce on any given day, would you not, I mean, like, look, I know I'm being chased by the feds, but I'm about to go jerk off on my boss's lunch <laughs> and he's literally never going to see it coming. 
just just roam about the city and just randomly throw invisipiss on people that have done you wrong. Oh yeah, just uh, piss off the top of a building and you know make it rain in San Francisco at noon on a clear day. What would that be like to be rained on with piss? You can't see it, but you can feel it and you can smell <laughs> right, it. Like make that your movie, right? Like oh, who who has been eating asparagus? This smells terrible. <laughs> so tart. Yeah, I would I would be leaving shit everywhere like i'm a real dirt bag i understand that but i would be shitting in the fountain at the mall <laughs> and, you know if you can find one but <laughs> now yeah rosalind chow calls him up and it's like hey asshole you're late for work no surprise glug glug he's like yeah I, i'm sick and she's like yeah you got a little brown bottle flu i get it <laughs> then he gets a call from his boss the answering machine picks up and is like hey where are you nick we're all not worried about you we you just have stuff to do here at the office and we don't believe this <laughs> sick shit for a second <laughs> like, how about you just you know eat an omelet <laughs> take a shower and come on in we understand that you're not gonna be able to work a full day <laughs> And then Alice calls him while uh, he's brushing his teeth. It's like, hey, I just want to confirm our lunch date that they set. You know, he hears the message and he's like, oh, right. I forgot Alice was in this movie. There's like a couple of visual effects gags of like him brushing his teeth and you see the foam of the toothpaste and then one with him on the phone. Does he brush his teeth? Because if he didn't, there would just be this food stuck in his teeth that didn't get digested by his body floating around like pieces of lo mein or chicken or pork or whatever he had in there or is it just that he's really into fresh breath i think it's because somebody wanted a special effect in this movie and we hadn't seen one in a few minutes like i would still brush my teeth in that scenario because that's just my morning routine is you know you get up and do the the triple s and brush the teeth and whatnot pause on that real quick let's let's go back to invisa shit <laughs> So he's shitting and it's invisible. Uh, yeah. How does he wipe his ass and how does he know when he's done? I've been thinking about this. I think what you do is you wipe and you fold and you rub it a little bit to see how much friction you got. If it's real sloppy and slimy, hey, you've still got some work to do, brother. But if you wipe again and you give it the little rub... And it's like, oh, okay, well, this just feels like paper move over paper. Or I'll tell you what, you don't even have to worry about it. You just take your shit and then you jump in the shower. <laughs> you just shit and take a shower. You don't even bother with paper. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, yeah, I think that's why all invisible men should be in France because of the bidet. <laughs> all right. As long as we are in agreement and we have an accord yeah I, I think if you and i either one were to become suddenly invisible we are far more prepared than the main character of this movie <laughs> we have a plan we know what we want to do with it we know how to take care of ourselves we're prepared to shit and piss off of buildings after alice calls him and says hey we're supposed to have lunch which i guess that somehow ranks close to all of the issues that smack you in the face when you suddenly become invisible and then the next message is sam neil calling him and telling nick that the two of them may have met last night which is sam neil calling everybody from the guest registry of magnoscopics because first off one he shouldn't be doing that he's got to learn to delegate because <laughs> right you're gonna burn yourself out you can't do it all take your not wings hauser second in command and be like hey, that guy looks like if wings hauser and jake Busey had a baby it would be this actor uh -huh. 
But it, it, yeah. you ought to tell him, like, hey, you need to call everybody on this list. And if somebody doesn't pick up, let me know. And that name goes on a list of, hey, potential invisible men. But immediately outside Nick's apartment, there's a bunch of government henchmen moving in on Nick, who's now put on his invisible clothes. As he's putting on his invisible clothes, we get some full-on Chevy Chase physical comedy as he's trying to clumsily put his arm inside the sleeve of his suit coat. My question for you, Bo, is this. How do they know that Nick is the invisible man because the call we were just referencing from Sam Neill was that a distraction I think they've narrowed it down like he's the one that called into work sick like I feel like there was a scene that we never saw that happen where they have been in touch with other people on the list they called his office and were like hey you know we need to talk to Nick blah 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 and they're like oh he's sick he's probably sleeping it off if you know what I mean and they were like "Mm, maybe not this time he might be invisible instead of just drunk so that's a more plausible scenario yes that he might be invisible as opposed to just drunk again (laughs) right right again i don't think anyone in that office is surprised when he shows up at 10 a.m for the first time that day a little bleary-eyed and smelling a gin nick sees that there are these henchmen on the way he invisibly goes out into the hallway as two of these henchmen show up one of the henchmen has a spray canister to hit him with some paint i think that's a good idea it's a it's a brilliant idea but counterbalance that against the other guy who has a gun and is talking about getting a headshot which i like you want to kill him now that that doesn't make any sense nick climbs on the outside of a staircase banister to hide and get away from the henchmen he slips and falls and he's hanging from this banister but he has to be quiet because he's invisible which we get some i guess it's like physical comedy slash suspense as nick is dangling from the banister yeah your guess is as good as mine too i don't know if that's supposed to be funny or not nick makes it down to the ground floor of his apartment building he buzzes this old lady's apartment and the old lady answers the door Nick rushes in and knocks over an old lady stunt double and then escapes through her backyard and Nick runs through a sheet that's hanging from a clothesline and he looks like a ghost kind of running through it, which is a really good effect for the movie trailer because it has no relevance in the film itself. All of this stuff, like the toothpaste and the chewing gum and this sheet and all that stuff, it's just like, huh? Invisible. (laughs) Like you could have called the movie that. Huh? Invisible. <laughs> but that's what it is. And and that's sort of one of the problems with this movie is that a movie can't just be a showcase for special effects because special effects always get better. And now this all looks okay to shitty. Like the best effects are the practical ones where you just see stuff like the sheet and that kind of thing where it's like, oh, there's just a form that they're using to drape a sheet over or the thing with the building or something like that. But you see the, you know, stuff floating in midair, like the bit with the hat or him eating the food or whatever. And it's all like, eh, this just doesn't look that good. I mean, it's, it, it looks, I guess, fine for the time, but that's just what it is. It's fine for the time. I think that review is also applicable to the original film that you can appreciate it for the time in which it was made, but I don't know that it holds up for contemporary audiences and i also don't think that you could make a modern day version of the invisible man because of the advancements of computer technology if you were to do a modern day version of this story it would really have to be a much more somber 
personal character-driven examination of what it's like to be there but not there. Or if you had a character that in their day-to-day life was arguably invisible, but then truly became invisible, right, but, but through that found their their strength of character, that you could do that. Yeah, I agree. I still think the original at least has more of a psychological component going on, where it, it deals at least thematically with the idea of absolute power corrupting absolutely and that kind of thing, that this one lacks even that. I mean, I, I'm not going to argue that the... The original film isn't dated. I just, I find those movies charming, is all. He's running away from Sam Neill and the feds. He gets out of the building. And as he's running through the neighborhood, uh, we get a cameo from Punchline's own Taylor Negron, who gets shot with a dart and falls face forward into his lunch or whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember when he used to be in movies. I think he's dead. Taylor Negron? Yeah, I think he's dead. Mm. They they corner Nick, the, the like our bad guys do. And again, Sam Neill is a great bad guy. He calls Nick a freak, to which Nick responds, fuck you, which is not necessary for a movie like this. And th- this is the reason this movie was PG-13, I guess. Or maybe they, re- again, rated it PG-13 because young children would have just been bored to annoyance if their parents had brought them to see <laughs> Right. Them. You must be 13 years old or older to stay awake for this movie. And at this point, Nick is on his own in San Francisco. We get a little montage of Nick getting smacked in the head by a guy hailing a cab, and we get this classic chevy chase pratfall we see nick wishing he could eat something and he's looking at some hot dog vendor handing out wieners and there's a scene that you mentioned earlier where the mugger steals a purse and he gives it back which i don't know again why this happens because nick does nothing that could arguably be described as heroic in this movie nick eventually finds a safe place to hide back at his all whites gentlemen's club and the next day nick dresses up head to toe as what i'm going to describe as a homeless person or grown man child that can't coordinate their clothing properly he goes and sees dr egghead who is the guy given the presentation at magnoscopics this is the man who made the speech that made nick fall asleep nick finds dr egghead and uh, shows the good doctor that he is now invisible and he pulls down these oversized glasses i think they're skiing glasses or something nick says he loves to ski in one of my favorite scenes of this movie we then cut over to a couple of the henchmen that were assigned to watch dr egghead but one of the henchmen is standing on the sidewalk about eight feet away from this woman in spandex workout clothing and she's doing stretching exercises just in public and this henchman is lurking next to her and he's smoking a cigarette and it's the type of ogling that is best reserved for strip clubs or prison yards i would even take issue with your description of it as lurking he's just standing there staring at her ass at tits there is no attempt to hide the leering that he's doing it's just like like and his buddy's like hey we need to keep an eye on this egghead doctor he's like yeah 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 I'm starting to get a rise, if you know what I mean. I'm not victim shaming here, but her stretching on the sidewalk in the middle of the day in this downtown area could only be less appropriate if it was being done at a Christmas Eve midnight mass service. It is so out of place. Everything about this is sexist. And again, I'm not picking on the woman doing this. It's the filmmakers themselves. of Like, why do you have a woman wearing skin tight clothing stretching in the middle? 
middle of a downtown city street with a guy standing two paces away smoking a cigarette staring at her ass so these two henchmen they figure out that nick is the homeless guy he's talking to dr egghead the henchmen shoot dr egghead with a tranquilizer gun and then Nick makes a run for it. As he does, Nick strips off all of his outer layers. I was wondering, is Nick naked under this homeless clothing collection? Or do you think he was wearing his invisible suit? Because I like to think that Nick was naked when he made his getaway. And he was just all ding-donging, ball-flopping in the wind as he got away. Sure, doing the Robin Williams from the Fisher King. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I pictured it. Maybe some boxers or something that were invisible. The next scene, Alice is eating lunch alone and she's day drinking so maybe alice and nick are really meant to be together you know um <laughs> i mean hey it's 10 a.m somewhere that's alice's motto um alice calls nick at his office and the bad guys are tapping that phone line so they've now got alice's name. here's the thing that what one of those things in movies where i'm like well that's just stupid so as the surveillance guys are getting alice's name alice monroe is her name and once she says her name like hey nick this is alice monroe monroe that was my ted night <laughs> It's pretty good. Uh, the surveillance guy writes her name across the middle of the sheet of paper diagonally and then <laughs> underlines it like we got it. It's like, wouldn't you want at least a little bit more room on the page to maybe take some additional notes? No. Like, hey, we got the name. Also, she's, you know, a late 20s female, blonde hair, slim build. Any of that stuff? Nope. Got the name. We're, we got it. I wanted the guy beside him just to be like, hey, Larry, come on, man. Like, we got to cut down trees to make this paper. And you just wasted a whole sheet to write down two words. <laughs> I'm not saying we got to save the whole world, but how, how about we save our corner of it, you know? Also, Taylor Negron did die of liver cancer. <laughs> I had to look it up. <laughs> so that, for you listeners, that's something that bothers me in movies and a little tidbit of trivia about Taylor Negron. <laughs> so Sam interrogates the doctor. Like, they get their hands on the egghead doctor. And Sam Neill is like, what do you know? And the doctor's like, I don't know anything, man. I'll, like, all I know is that this weird thing happened with the invisibility that was not what we were working on. That was just a random effect of the experiment. Then uh, Sam Neill is like, all right, take care of the doctor, he says to Not Wingshauser. And Not Wingshauser has profiled Nick Holloway and is like, look, he's, you know, he's got friends, but he's not terribly close. And he doesn't have like a, a woman that he's with. And this is where Sam Neill has the reasonably good line and good delivery of, you know, he really, he was the perfect asset because he was invisible before he was ever invisible and it's like oh well that's kind of what this movie ought to be about is that the idea of invisibility should be the real world metaphor for the character's invisibility which this movie hints at it's there in the movie but it doesn't ever feel consistently addressed throughout the movie like we get this there's a scene with his friends that when he overhears them talking about when they, they think he might have died and that kind of thing. Like there are these little moments peppered through where it's like, oh, this kind of should be what the, like the movie should be a comedy about a guy who starts to enjoy being invisible and starts to get away with shit and that kind of thing. But what he realizes is that what he really wants is to make a, a, a human connection with someone and he never has. And that should be the thrust of the film. But what you're describing isn't even fan fiction. You're, this is a wholly different movie. 
<laughs> yeah. I know you have a have a insatiable desire to fill in the gaps or maybe provide logistical detours to where a movie could go to get where it wants to be. But yet what you're describing is a completely different narrative. And I agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. I would love to see that movie done. In fact, we talked earlier about Hollow Man. Hollow Man is another Invisible Man story, which kind of sort of does what you're describing. It just deals with a lot more rape and, you know, looking at naked chicks, which I don't want to go down that alleyway. But yeah, there's definitely an opportunity to do this in a much more personal, intimate way that I've not seen. Well, but if you wanted to make this the broad comedy that like Ivan Reitman wanted to make and that the uh, William Goldman apparently had written then that would be the movie right it's the pickpocket thing it's the thing with the drunk it's the friends talking about how you know well we never really knew him and and being um kind of cruel about his disappearance and all that stuff like all that is there it's just there's all this other bullshit on top of it there's a following sequence where nick narrates this dream that he's had nick is top dog of king ship mountain and they work in chevy chase playing jazz piano and in this dream he's a tennis pro where he's being cheered on by lots of blonde women we see alice in this dream she's all dolled up for some sex and lingerie and nick opens up his robe and his dick is gone there's an invisible hole where his cock should be that's i guess what nick's biggest fear that he has no penis and then to top it off sam neil pops up to you know to kind of punctuate the nightmare so nick wakes up and he decides he's going to be a man of action he goes down and follows a henchman to their hideout to see what they're up to and find out what they know about nick my question Bo, is how does nick know where the henchman's hideout is or who the henchmen are or who the hell sam neal's character is so yeah he follows them back chad um i don't know man i mean it again i we could always try to ask john carpenter who would then tell us to go fuck ourselves and be like hey i got paid for that movie right um so yeah it doesn't matter I, I mean it should it just doesn't because he knows that they're feds that's all he really knows about them and in fairness he like he follows a guy who runs out to get food from their office and follows him back in but yeah how would he know which guy worked there did he just see him on the street and then recognize him and start following him around i mean who knows yeah he follows this other henchman he gets inside and sam neil's office completely looks like they rented out the old valiant and valiant detective agency there's a gun in the bottom drawer of sam neil's desk and nick finds a file in the file cabinet all about him and then sam neil and his henchmen come into the office and nick just stands in the corner quietly and then we transition from day to night and it's just sam neil uh, at his desk and we as the audience can see nick our invisible man standing in the office and nick stretches his leg out and it kind of quietly pops which sam neil is like what was that (laughs) right and then in one of my like my favorite moments of the movie sam neil's like wait a minute i got a plan and then (laughs) he pretends to yawn which makes nick yawn and then sam neil hears nick's yawn which first off how did sam neil not hear the thundering sound of nick's eyelashes fluttering involuntarily (laughs) as he blinked (laughs) the The sound of his pulse. How do you hear someone yawn unless it's one of those golden retriever high pitch, you know, early morning? (laughs) 
<laughs> yawns? You don't hear a yawn. I see. I would have assumed it would have been like a squeaker of a fart or something that gave him away. <laughs> so what does Sam Neil do? He taps on his patented Matt Lauer secret desk button to lock the door to his office. Holy shit! And so Nick is shit. I have the exact same <laughs> joke in my notes. <laughs> I, in fact, the way it reads is he locks the door with a Matt Lauer button. Yeah. <laughs> and then Sam Neill starts talking to Nick and he's asking him questions like, you know, why Nick? So I know you're here, Nick. What's going on, Nick? How you doing, Nick? Which here's the thing. Why didn't Nick just shut the fuck up and just stand there quietly? Eventually, Sam Neill would have just blathered on and realized he's cre- he's he's <laughs> behaving like a crazy person. But that's not what happens. Right. You know, Nick's like, fuck you, Sam Neill. And he's telling, uh, like Sam Neill tells Chevy Chase, like, we don't have to be enemies here, Nick. You know, we we can make an arrangement. You uh, imagine if you could go back in time and be uh, an invisible agent and, and take down Adolf Hitler. It always comes back to killing Hitler. In these types of scenarios, like, that's your go-to. <laughs> well, he's, in fairness, he's history's greatest monster. Did I ever tell you I had an idea for a movie about two guys that go back in time to kill Hitler? But when they go back, they go a little too far, and Hitler's this five-year-old adorable kid. And then when they're back in time, one of the guys kind of fucks up, and so his great-great-grandmother falls in love with him instead of his great-great-grandfather. So he's got to make his great-great-grandparents fall in love while the other guy has to decide whether or not he's going to kill this five-year-old child. And I wanted to call it Back to the Fuhrer. (laughs) Oh, there's a long tail on that guy, but I like where we ended up. So we're back in the office and somehow Sam Neill and our invisible hero Nick get into a fist fight, which how is that even possible? Nick is invisible. Nick opens the door and he puts the gun from the bottom of the drawer to Sam Neill's head and all the henchmen rush in. Nick leaves with Sam Neill as his hostage and there's this phantom pistol attached to Sam Neill's forehead and Nick gets away and we're watching Sam Neill walk backwards with this gun placed against his temple and all I could think about was Cleavon Little and Blazing Saddles (laughs) when he took himself hostage (laughs) everyone stay back I think he'll do it (laughs) again I need to make my list Harvey Blazing Saddles what am I missing off of movies I should be watching instead of the garbage that we talk about (laughs) yeah Or Big Trouble in Little China. Like, hey, any, everyone needs to watch that movie once a year. Once he, <laughs> Cleavon Little's his way out of the building, he decides he's going to get out of town. So he takes off and stays at Michael McKeon's beach house uh, because these are just the most overprivileged white assholes that could ever turn invisible. <laughs> oh my God. Like, we go from the private club to his beach house in the Hamptons or whatever the fuck. Then he orders a bunch of food and charges it to the Underhills. Want the number? Um,. <laughs> that he charges it i love that joke anyway but he charges it to to george and the delivery kid shows up with you know basically a bunch of booze and some potato chips which is i'm sure what nick subsisted on beforehand the delivery kid starts looking around the place like hey nobody's around like there's a note left that nick has written that's like hey we're off on the beach like sand fucking or whatever it is and so we're gonna be gone for a little bit just leave here's the money and the tip and leave the the booze on the counter the kid starts roaming around the place trying to 
uh, scout it for robbery, like looking around to see if there's anything he wants to steal. Nick sneaks up behind him and is like, hey, dickwad. My question is, does this kid have a really compelling encounter with a ghost that is somehow punctuated with the ghost calling him a dickwad? Right. Like what kind of elementary school ghost are you running into that's like, hey, dickwad, circle, circle, dot, dot. If you were to go and deliver groceries at a beach house and you really had an encounter with the paranormal that's how you tell your friends like dude i once saw a ghost and i could feel it breathing on my neck and it called me a dickwad it just completely <laughs> undermines the reality of, of what happened to you yeah if someone told you that story you'd be like i was with you till dickwad <laughs> right and it may be true but i can't believe it because my concept of eternity and the afterlife doesn't match up with the typical insult of a fifth grade skater yeah then it gave me a wedgie and a purple nurple <laughs> Right, you give me an Indian burn and a red belly. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, it's stupid. But so Nick is narrating again, and he says, "Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go underground, and all I need is an online account, and I can do all all this stock trading uh, via fax and that kind of thing. And I'm going to become the way he puts it is." I'll become an invisible tycoon. And I was like, well, now that's a movie I want to see. The invisible tycoon sounds fucking rad. But that's not where we end up. Well, it is kind of where we end up, but it's not what the movie is about. And that's unfortunate. Because what happens instead is that George and Patricia Heaton, uh, George Michael McKeon's character, and Alice and another dude named Richard show up because they're going to have a weekend at the beach house. And they come in and it's a real like three bear situation where they're like hey somebody's been wearing my tracksuit hey somebody's been drinking all my liquor and who stocked the fridge and they kind of come around to the fact that it's Nick because they're like Michael McKean originally thinks it's his brother who might have gotten uh, away from his wife or something but then there's a particular kind of booze that isn't really set up that I recall but he's like oh I know who drinks this kind of liquor you know only I know that the audience doesn't need to know it because I do Michael McCann. He's like, I think I know who, who's been staying here. It's Goldilocks. Right. Also, Michael McKeon's character, he gives Richard, who's kind of the fourth in this foursome, along with Alice, the blonde from earlier, he kind of gives him this like eyebrows up as if to say, hey man, it's cool if you fuck her in my summer home. Yeah. Once they realize that that it's Nick who, you know, consumes this type of alcohol and as you noted earlier, random bags of potato chips, they're like, hey, you know, we think that this is what's going on. But as they do their investigating, Richard says, we should look around the house. Is there a gun in the house? Which again, I don't know if he's wanting to know whether or not the potential burglar may have found a gun or if he's wanting to arm himself against what I'm assuming is a non-white male that has broken into the summer home. Also, Richard wears an ascot and he speaks that Hollywood, New England style voice of like, he's constantly trying out for Shakespeare in the park like oh yeah smuffy <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's really distracting in this movie because everyone else speaks fairly naturally and it, maybe that's his real voice and if it is I'm sorry but the entire time he's speaking he sounds like a cartoon fox are you sorry because you're insulting his voice or are you sorry because you're like that's his voice I'm sorry he talks that way and I'm sorry I have to hear it as the foursome is going through the house looking for the person who broke in 
we eventually enter a room and we find Nick. And as us, the audience, sees him, he is now naked in the corner of the room with his hands over his dick. I don't know if he's modest or ashamed or whatever, but it's supposed to be a joke. Supposed to be. It's it's not very funny. He he shed his clothes. There is no reason for him to feel shame because no one can see him but Jesus. <laughs> so in the next scene, George and his wife and Alice and Richard, the Shakespearean yapping guy, they're all there and they've realized that Nick has somehow come up to the house. And Ellen, the wife, says that she thinks that Nick came up to the summer house to probably fuck somebody else's wife mm-hmm. because all of his friends think he's a horrible person now richard our new fourth he proposes that nick probably committed suicide by walking into the ocean does richard even know nick because i don't think he does i think he's just hypothesizing that he drowned himself he just saw the hours recently and now he just <laughs> thinks everyone dies like that it's either that or he just binged watch six feet under and he's like that's how you do it mm-hmm. nick's friends proceed to all talk shit about him as he is invisibly standing by hearing how they're not really his friends you know how you make this not happen is you don't be an alcoholic layabout who just fucks a bunch of random people and never has a a single decent relationship which again should be what the movie is kind of about even though it's not but that's what this scene would imply the movie is about but at the end of the day it's just like oh yeah he's a big jerk and nobody likes him and that's sort of the fact of the character it's not like this doesn't become a turning point for the character which it should be for him to become a better person like in let's say a christmas carol (laughs) right when scrooge sees his nephew and they're all talking shit about him and he's like really that's how they see me in this movie nick's there and they're like he's probably fucking somebody's wife he's an alcoholic he never shows up at work he's got a little dick and nick's just like yep guilty as charged right he's a incorrigible gambler as well yep at all tracks (laughs) so in this scene richard does this impromptu seance and nick has had all he can stand he pulls down richard's pants which is terribly embarrassing for him because everyone sees his underwear i i don't know is this a step up from calling someone a dickwad i'm but it's in the ballpark it just feels like this script was ghost written by like mrs johnson's third grade class of like <laughs> you know what would be funny what if he pulls his pants down uh-huh he pulls his pants down and calls him a dickwad <laughs> The group all retires for the night and Richard tries to make the moves on Alice in her room and Nick is there standing by and he's watching and then Richard tries to kind of loosen up Alice with some booze which doesn't work. Then Richard compliments Alice on her looks which doesn't work. Then Richard says that his wife has recently left him Mm -hmm. and that he's a total mess. That's my move. (laughs) Richard starts crying so that's like his ace up his sleeve pity sex. Has that ever worked i mean unless you have like a terminal disease pity sex is not the way to go hey any port in a store man alice tells richard to stop crying because he is i put a cat to sleep to get laid <laughs> Alice (laughs) tells Richard to stop crying, which I can only guess because Alice is embarrassed for this poor excuse of a man. (laughs) 
So, so what does Richard do? What's one step below pity sex? It's sexual assault because Richard just, (laughs) he just jumps on Alice all rapey like. And at this point, our invisible hero, Nick, and I use the hero in the least purposeful means possible. Nick violently rips Richard off of Alice. And then Richard goes flying across the room. Richard then leaves and tells Alice, don't tell anybody that I cried, which look, man, if I'm Alice, I'm not only telling everybody about him crying, I'm telling him about seeing his underwear i'm talking about this ascot i'm talking about it or just reporting the assault to police that is the thing i would be most worried about her saying to you anyone like you can tell them i cried but please don't tell them i shoved you down on the bed and then climbed on top of you that would be quite inappropriate. Let's be honest. The only reason Chevy Chase pulls him off isn't because, oh, he's doing something vile. It's because he's doing something vile to my lady. The one I'm all invisibly looking at when she's changing clothes later. He was calling invisible dibs on Alice. Yeah, that's totally what happens here. Like when we see a few minutes later, Alice now asleep in bed, she is at the very least topless because either that or she's wearing some kind of outfit that stops just above her boobs which seems inappropriate for sleepwear but she had to have changed into that right right so it means he absolutely watched her undress which begs the question did he jerk off or did he just rub himself and those are two different things a little bit later his creep factor is dialed up because nick is walking on the beach and he's what he sees his friend george and ellen the married couple and they're having sex on the beach they're having sex with all of their clothes on which man look i've i've seen some weird stuff in my life i'm not watching two of my close friends have sex on the beach like that's the minute he hears her say squeeze my butt george which is a weird thing to say during sex like spank my ass maybe but squeeze my butt seems both a little too tame and a little too inappropriate i don't know (laughs) it's just a weird combination of words and then george of course comes early because one of the running themes of our show is premature ejaculation But yeah, and like Chevy Chase watches the whole thing. And like, as soon as you hear like, squeeze my butt, George, I'll be like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. Like I'm getting as far away as I can because I don't want to hear. I accidentally heard my parents fuck when I was a kid and it's haunted me forever. You know, like you just don't need that image of people you care about in your head. I was in a hotel one time uh, on a business trip and late at night, the people in the room next to me started having sex and they woke me up. The bed was banging. It was like bang, bang, bang. So I had to get up to catch an early flight. So I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to go ahead and get up, take a shower. I'll go down, catch a taxi to the airport. We'll just kind of wrap this up. Like this is a little awkward, right? So I go and get in the shower. And then the two people who were just having sex in the bed decided to move to the shower in their hotel room which because of the positioning of the hotel rooms my shower was adjacent to their shower and they continued having sex in the shower so there was part of me that i was like you know what's really weird i'm in the shower naked there are two people having sex like literally 24 inches away from me on the other <laughs> side of the wall passionately emphatically screaming about what they wanted the other one to do to the other and it and i was just like yes i was like damn it 
Just get away from me. Quit having sex near me. Strange people. <laughs> what Was there a particular move that they called for that you were like, really? That, that's a high degree of difficulty in a shower. That is going to take some effort. The part that took place in the bed went on for the better part of a half hour. And part of me at first, I, I, was, I went through such a range of emotions of embarrassment to excitement, to curious, to shame, to anger, to hungry, to sleepy, back to excitement more shame and and then i was just like you know what? i'm just gonna get up and then when i went to the shower because of the nakedness part of it it really really got uncomfortable of just like good god like i i, I gotta get away from this i would have applauded at a certain point of just like <laughs> yeah, that way you let them know that you're there and maybe they tone it down but also that you appreciate their level of enthusiasm and Quite frankly, if they've been going half an hour and then moved to the shower, the stamina. I took some of the in-room stationery, sent them a <laughs> uh, polite thank you note that I slid under the door. <laughs> right. Normally, I would order some in-room porn. Thanks for saving <laughs> me the eight bucks, strangers in room 213. <laughs> <laughs> So back to our perverts in the movie. The next day, <laughs> Chevy Chase says, hey, I'm going to move to that house down by the beach. Like, what? You're just going to break into a stranger's house now? All right, whatever. <laughs> right, he has no key. <laughs> He's just like, hey, my, you know, my, my good time was busted at George's place. So instead, I just decided on a, some good old-fashioned breaking and entering. Yeah, so he goes to that house, a stranger's house, and gives Alice a call. And is like, hey, can you come to the house down uh, from George's on the beach? And she agrees for whatever reason and shows up in, like, classic Invisible Man, like Claude Rain's Invisible Man, kind of get up with the robe and ascot and bandages. You know, he's like, I have something to show you, Alice. And then uh, starts to unwrap shit, and then she she just passes out. Then we get, there's a weird scene with Richard and George Michael McCann where they're like, hey, so uh, Alice said she was going to go running. That was a couple hours ago. Huh. Been a while. And Michael McCann is like, yeah, well, you know, it's been a couple hours. I wonder if uh, something happened. But they don't look like they're, <laughs> it, it's not like, <laughs> I wonder if something happened and maybe we should go look for it. It's just like, huh. I mean, damn. I wonder if she was, I don't know, attacked or something. And then Richard says, don't worry about that. Don't worry worry about that old chum she's strong as an ox and it's like wait a second so you're saying we're not gonna bother to look for our friend that we have brought to a strange place because first of all i brought her here for you to fuck her and you couldn't seem to seal the deal on that so now that she's running i'm just crossing my fingers that she was sexually assaulted because then at least somebody gets to fuck her because <laughs> he tried to set her up with chevy chase that didn't work out richard seems like a bust he's just constantly trying to pimp alice out. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable is what i'm getting at the next scene has steven tobolowski uh who's with sam neal and they are now at the all white man gentleman's club which is being raided tobolowski and sam neal argue about their method of capturing nick and then sam neal threatens to cut off tobolowski's balls and have one of his henchmen eat them which sounds worse for the henchman than it does for tobolowski i don't know what the henchman did to deserve that or maybe he's into eating strangers balls or something. right he's got a weird ed gein thing going on where he's like i've always wanted to eat somebody i've wanted to taste the forbidden fruit of human flesh barf 
We cut back to either the next door neighbor's beach house or it's George's beach house. I don't know which one it is because here Nick and Alice are talking while Nick is smoking a cigarette. And so we see the smoke go in and out of his lungs, which is again, another invisible man effect in this movie. We also get to see his face in the smoke. Nick tells Alice that he wants her to open a brokerage account and buy stocks for some company, which shouldn't this be kind of hinging on insider trading maybe like you know go back to where nick is talking to kathy his secretary she shows him something that you know nick can't act on but alice could nick never uses his invisibility to his advantage that could help him in his financial or personal gain right nick is morally bankrupt i don't think that that committing financial crimes isn't that far of a stretch for our protagonist boy scout it doesn't make sense that he is suddenly this financial super genius where earlier in the film we saw that he's barely even an employee of this company i mean you're right he he doesn't ever behave in a way that would be consistent with what you would consider like a moral or ethical hero and in fact as he's going through this plan of hey you're gonna open up this brokerage account and it's not gonna cost you anything and we're gonna make some cash and then i'll get out of your life she then starts pressing him on hey were you in my room last night and he gives a real non-denial kind of denial about it at that point it's just like oh yeah right you're not only trying to manipulate the stock market to your own benefit which like you said has nothing to do with being invisible it just is him being a a real sleazy white collar criminal but also kind of admits to the fact that like yeah he was giving it a tug while she was changing clothes the night before (laughs) alice finds it all charming somehow because apparently she's been so abused by her friend george all these years that somebody not raping her seems romantic she's like hey i think we can help you and decides she's going to put some makeup on him. And so she's giving him a, a face and she's got like white out for his teeth and that kind of thing. She's like, hey, you owe me a dinner. How about we go out? And he's like, all right, we'll give this a shot. Why would they do that? This is completely illogical. It does nothing to progress the narrative forward. For that matter, hey, let's go out to dinner. How about this? Let's go to a public swimming pool and do cannonballs. Like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> How about this? How about you and I go race go-karts? Me versus the invisible go-kart. How about this? I've got a better idea. How about you and I go kidnap Jim Henson? What the (laughs) fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Now that's a movie I want to see. (laughs) It is so stupid. Stupid. In fact, what I really wanted to hear was him him say something like, you know what I wish I could do? I wish I could go out to dinner. Well, let's just do it. Where would you want to go? Like, I don't know. How about a Ruby Tuesdays? <laughs> <laughs> like, What? I don't know. It's their restaurant where they just lock you inside. It's a rainforest cafe kind of situation where there's. <laughs> right. How about like, you know, what we, you know what? How about this? What would you really want to do? I know this is going to sound crazy, but. Can we go to Chuck E. Cheese? Right. <laughs> oh, Nick, you're incorrigible. Let's do it. You shithead. But at the end of this stupid date where like, and of course it goes badly because at one point he wipes his mouth and he, you know, wipes most of uh, the makeup off and has a semi-invisible face. And she's like, oh, heavens to Betsy. I guess we've got some more work to do. It's also here that Alice tells him that she doesn't think that this whole stock market plan is such a bright idea because either one, Nick is a dummy 
with the Wall Street smarts of Lenny Dykstra or two, she doesn't want to go to jail for insider trading, which I'm probably leaning more towards the first one than the second one. <laughs> sure. I'm probably prison is would be a nice vacation for Alice, given the way that her friends and loved ones treat her. When, when they get back to the beach house, though, the not George's house. There's a moment where Alice is like, hey, here are some reasons that being invisible would be kind of cool. It's almost a list of things you wish happened in this movie where she's like, you could go rob a bank and no one would know. And and he's like, "Uh, I I don't think I would do that. It's like, right, because that would be something interesting that an invisible man type would do. And that's not the case. And we kind of skipped over it, but there there was one point Chevy Chase is in Sam Neill's office. And it's when they're starting to kind of wrestle and Chevy Chase is saying, like, you know, telling Sam Neill, like, you don't know the kind of person I am because I, I've been pushed to this pl- this extreme place. And he says, I can't, when I close my eyes uh, to sleep, I can see through my eyelids and it's driving me crazy. And it's this little moment of darkness that's like, you know, either don't mention that or expand on that because the idea of, oh, let's look at what's horrible about being invisible like the movie just never dedicates itself to going either direction whether like being invisible is kind of cool and weird and fun and we get to see him like chewing gum and smoking a cigarette and eating cans of corn i wish um or <laughs> or going darker with it where it's like oh no this is actually terrible because it completely removes me from society and it's driving me crazy because of all these things like i can't eat and i can't sleep because i can see through my eyelids the only way that I can effectively wipe my ass is to continually smell the paper. Right. I have to rub it on my face. <laughs> Why would you do that, Nick? You don't, you could just <laughs> use your fingers. I mean, at worst. So have you thought about taking a shower, Nick? I have to rub it on my face. <laughs> uh, but. Yeah, but the movie can't commit to any of that stuff. And even when Alice is giving him this list of like, hey, have you thought about doing this cool shit? Like going to a lady's locker room. I mean, fucking anything. And he's like, nope. How about instead we just, I don't know, have some bean <laughs> dip and go to bed? <laughs> is Chuck E. Cheese on your list? Because that's the thing I really want to do. Things start to get romantic at this point between Nick and Alice at the beach house. And then a bunch of helicopters and henchmen and bloodhounds show up looking for Nick. So they scamper off. And then Alice and Nick go to a train station to head to San Diego. They talk and it starts to rain, which sticks to Nick's body. And she kisses on him. And the two of them go over and have sex in a Motel 6, which... <laughs> I kind of wonder what that would be like, not having sex with an invisible person, just having sex at a Motel 6 near a train station. (laughs) This is the best looking Motel 6 I've ever seen in my life, though. This is a real Hollywood Motel 6 because it looks clean. Having sex at a Motel 6 near a train station is one step away from having sex at an establishment known as Hotel Near a bus depot. (laughs) Having sex at a Motel 6 by a train station is the origin story of Fred (laughs) Krueger. 
the next morning, Nick and Alice get on the train and then our bad guys show up and they're flashing a picture of Alice to some random worker who nods like, I know her. So the bad guys decide they're going to jump ahead to the next stop and get on the train, which they do. Sam Neill then runs into Alice on the train as she's off on a food run for Nick and the henchmen grab Alice. They find her ticket in her pocket and so they know what room Nick is in and Alice screams for Nick to run. Nick comes out into the hall and he then gets shot by a tranquilizer dart. He runs through a dining car, causes some havoc, and then he falls off the train into a river. That's pretty lucky for Nick, right? I don't know. I mean, I think falling off a train onto, say, the ground nearby would probably be better. But it's lucky in the sense that he gets washed away, as he put it. Like, current must have taken me half a mile. It's like, eh, that's not that far. Our movie is now back where we started, where Nick is inside this crazy Eddie's location. And... Uh, he's making his videotape. He sends it to Sam Neill and Alice is there with Sam Neill and a bunch of henchmen. How long has Alice been with Sam Neill and the henchmen? Like days, weeks? I mean, because Nick fell into the river. He went to Crazy Eddie's. He made the tape. He had to send it to Sam Neill. That's what, a week? At least a couple of days. And even Sam Neill is like, well, your friend Nick has a flair for the dramatic. I mean, he could have just come and got you. And instead, he broke into a camera store, made a videotape, sent it to me and news outlets do you think by day five sam neil and the henchmen were just like huh he did fall off the train i'll bet he's dead he's dead right <laughs> yeah should we let her go do you have any more of that Kevorkian poison we gave to Dr. Egghead earlier? Should we just kill her? This doesn't make any sense. What are you waiting for? Well, he might contact us. I don't think he's going to. Right, like five minutes earlier in this scene, it's Sam Neill looking at his watch and like, all right, everyone, if we haven't gotten a videotape by two o'clock today, we're gonna let her go. Do we all agree? Good. What's that? Videotape arrived. Well, let's have a look. <laughs> Nick calls Sam Neill on the phone after he's given him the tape and says, I've got multiple copies of this because Nick's smart. He tells Sam Neill to put Alice in a cab. He, sa- he tells Sam Neill that he wants him to look out the window of his office building. And down below, there's this man wrapped in bandages, wearing sunglasses and a hat and a coat. And so Sam Neill drags Alice down to make this switcheroo with this mystery bandage man on the corner. Look, the guy on the payphone making this call, it's clearly not Nick. There is no one watching this movie thinking that this person on the phone is our hero, right? As soon as you see him just stupidly staring up at the window like, hi guys! (laughs) You know it's not him. You know that it's a setup. Yeah, Sam Neill doesn't ferret that out because it's not like he's in intelligence or anything. Mendoza! (laughs) My job is killing people. I don't think of how I could be hoodwinked. I play checkers, not chess, motherfucker. So Samuel drags Alice down to make this switcheroo. The henchmen tackle this mystery bandage man after Alice gets in the cab and Samuel punches him in. And it turns out that it's George, the friend, and it's not Nick. So then we cut over and Alice is now in this taxi cab and asks the cab driver where they're going. And it's here that Nick reveals himself, which is hard to tell because, as you noted earlier, he is in total blackface. Yeah, it is. It's one of those things of like, Oh, really? That's where we decided to go with this movie? All right. If his look was accompanied by one of those Robin Williams Middle Eastern convenience store clerk accents to go along with this getup, yeah, that's that's uncomfortably racist. 
But this black face, it, maybe it's just more of a reflection of the makeup that Nick had available to create a disguise. So, Along with the turban, you mean? You know what? I, th- my next line was his clothes are kind of racist. <laughs> right? It's, yes, if he were doing an accent, it would be more racist. But, I mean, on the racism scale, it's still a solid five. Like, if he had done the accent, we're talking a seven or an eight. If you have to ask the question... Is it racist? And then you continue it. The answer is always yes. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. If the costume designer slash makeup person had to look both ways before suggesting this get up. <laughs> there's this bit where Daryl Hannah is like, hey, then who's who's back there? And Chevy Chase very quickly is like, oh, it's George. I called in a favor or whatever. And at that point, I was like, wait a second. This smacks of bullshit. Because no matter how much of a bullshit artist Nick is, I'm thinking like, okay, you and I have known each other for going on four decades. (laughs) And you were like, I need you to put on some bandages and an overcoat and a hat and stand on a street corner. And I can't tell you why. Bullshit. Right? There's no way. I mean, I love you dearly, but I got questions that have to be answered before I show up. I probably still would. The flip side is like, and where are you going to be? Well, I'm going to be decked out in blackface driving a taxi cab. <laughs> like, nope. At that point, I think I'm in, I'm in. Like, I don't know what this plan is, but it sounds crazy, and I feel like I need to be part of it. <laughs> as racist as this plan is, I have to see where it goes. All of our henchmen uh, jump in their own vehicles, and they chase the racist taxi cab down the street, and they run it off the road. And then Nick runs off, and at this point, Alice proceeds to beat up the henchman, who was the one driving the racist taxi cab off of the road. So good for you, Alice. Bad for you, racist Nick. Sam Neill then runs off to catch Nick as well. Nick strips down as he's running down the street and looks like what I imagine Jombie would look like if he was outside <laughs> of his wish box. If Jombie was a marathon runner. Right. <laughs> Mecca like a high, Mecca 13.1. So another question I had in this moment is, so uh, Stephen Tobolowski has shown up at the end of the movie to be like, hey, we're shutting shit down. And like, no matter, forget this invisible man shit, like you're you're done. You have gone over budget and, and beyond the, the bounds of your authority and you're finished. And not Wings Hauser is still tagging along with Sam Neill because Sam Neill says, forget what Stephen Tobolowski said. And then very quietly, he's like, don't forget I said that remember everything he said he's a wonderful actor um but forget everything he says he's a national treasure I swear to god he's just have you ever heard his podcast oh my god it's just amazing anyway um Tobolowski Files good show anyway but then he's like but we can grab this invisible man and sell him to the highest bidder which it's like why on earth would you it's like buying a cat you know is gonna ruin your (laughs) curtains you know like we never got him declawed and he sprays everywhere and he shreds everything and get his claws on do you want to buy him from us it's like this guy doesn't want to do that you're you're selling a guy into unwanted slavery and yeah i i suppose you could but you're not gonna get top dollar for that you know hey bo most slavery is unwanted you're right. I, you know, I'm sure in some bondage circles. 
<laughs> I saw Exit to Eden. Nick runs past a street cleaning truck, which is blasting water into the air, and the water washes off all of his racist blackface makeup, so he's 100% invisible again, which, how bad would you smell after being covered in water used to clean a city street? With all of the piss <laughs> and just spit and throw up and just filth, it's, it's got... You think he cubs some of it and runs it between his ass cheeks, like, well, let me do a little cleanup while we're at it. I can always use a little extra water. He's not getting hosed off by Fiji. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, yeah, no, no, no. It's like somebody throwing, like, sewage water at you. <laughs> right. And you being like, oh, thank Christ. Oh, what I wouldn't give for a, a good bucket of sewer water right now. Nick runs into some construction site. He slips and falls, and I think it's either concrete mix or dirt or sand or something gets on his clothes. Nick gets up and he runs, and Sam Neal can now see part of the outline of his suit jacket, and he chases after Nick. Nick goes to the top of this construction site. Sam Neal gives chase. The two of them chat for a while, and then lots of police cars show up at the bottom because Stephen Tobolowski, American National Treasure, has decided that Sam Sam Neal is an asshole and we got to get some, you know, legitimate authorities in place to, uh, to handle the situation. The amount of notes that I have for the end of this film are shockingly small. Yeah. All he does is like, uh, Chevy Chase holds his jacket at the edge of the, the rooftop and it's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill myself. And you know, Sam Neal's like, no, you have so much to live for. And not really. He's like, oh no, I, I need, I can't, I can't have you killing yourself. I've sacrificed too much. I'm, I'm like giving this better dialogue than the end of the movie really has. Sam Neal rushes to grab Nick. Nick, Nick says, Olay, you son of a bitch. Like he's a bullfighter. Right. And then Sam Neill and the jacket fall off the edge. And then Sam Neill's dead. Chevy Chase says, what a nincow poop. What a gullible. I am normally a fan of the race dance. Get em <laughs> plan of attack. But you're, when you're on the edge of a high-rise building that's under construction, you should really think that one through. I mean, it's going to end badly, whether for yourself or your intended subject, whether invisible or not. One or both of you is going to plummet off of this building, and it's going to be a very mushy demise. Yeah, oh, it's a terrible plan. And better yet, you see the actual plank that they're standing on kind of tilt up like the whole thing was unstable to begin with like sam neal should have seen the lay of the land he proves himself over and over again in this movie to not be nearly as good a secrets or, or uh, like a spy or assassin as congress thought he was we get a little one last little taste of uh steven tobolowski in this movie where after daryl hannah goes to the skips right past sam neal's dead crushed broken body on the sidewalk uh she goes over to the like tattered invisible coat that you can see because of all the cement dust and whatnot and steven tobolowski comes up to her and gives her like a, a you didn't see nothing speech but the way he says it is like you never saw anything make things easy for yourself and you're like oh God, Steven Tobolowski, you're so good. Why couldn't you have been the Invisible Man? That would have been awesome. Right. Or, as we've discussed before, Steve, Steve Buscemi. <laughs> hey, I'm invisible over here. Can you believe it? Huh? Crazy, right? My shit's invisible, too. So's my <laughs> semen. What do you mean, how do I know? This is the first thing I did. I jacked off. My girlfriend's Daryl Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so daryl hannah finds his jacket nick comes up and he's like 
hey, I'm not really dead. Let's just walk off quietly together. Right, and then she puts her arm around him, and you're like, hey, knock it off for like a block, how about? All right, let's get out of sight before we start groping one another. Jesus Christ, lady, you're terrible at this. One of my favorite moments of this whole film is that the next scene, we cut to Nick and Alice, and they're in Aspen. And then the credits of the movie prematurely start rolling. <laughs> right, it's like, hey, well, let's wrap her up. It's really like, get, get these people out of the theater. So Nick comes skiing <laughs> down this hill, and he raises up his ski goggles, and he's still invisible. And then we see Alice, and she's pregnant. And as an audience member, you're just like, why are the credits rolling? <laughs> Right, this seems like important information. And then there's there's kind of like the two of them together and then more credits and more scene and then fade out to black and then the bulk of the credits show up and that's the end of the movie. There is such weird, like I was saying, there, there's that pregnant pause like when the, the fade out with Tobolowski and Sam Neill goes on too long. Whereas this, it's like the credits start too soon. It's like somebody was, was just like, oh man, who could possibly give a shit? How about we just start rolling the credits? I mean, does anyone really care if she's pregnant or not? Like, it begs all these questions, like, is there an invisible baby? Like, there's an alternate ending to the movie. I don't know if it was shot or not. I can't remember now from the research. But uh, there was an there was an alternate ending, at least written, that showed the, the children that were invisible. Maybe that's a better ending? I don't know. I mean, who cares? This movie's stupid. Yeah, it's, it's not good. It's not scary. It's not psychologically insightful it's just it's bad i i go back to the review that you noted at the beginning it's not a comedy it's not a thriller it's just sort of this weird hybrid of of ideas that just don't come together so i don't recommend this one. Oh no i mean especially in the canon of john carpenter films there are so many great movies in that filmography like this is his family plot yeah to compare him to hitchcock of like oh this is kind of the stinker he did towards the end of his run the trouble is john carpenter isn't a guy who does broadly appealing films he does these niche films and then 10 years after he makes them an audience shows up for them where it's right. like, you know, oh, like who could possibly have cared about Prince of Darkness when it came out? Or In the Mouth of Madness, another movie with Sam Neill. And then, you know, eight, ten years later, people are like, oh yeah, no, In the Mouth of Madness is kind of a rad movie. It, like, it, it does Lovecraft in a way that most movies don't get Lovecraft right. Those are the movies that Carpenter always needed to be making. And every time he tried to dip his toe into, hey, let's do some mass market kind of film, he couldn't do it. And it does doesn't help that you have Chevy Chase in the starring role where he is trying to deliver a performance that he is either incapable of or incapable of fully committing himself to. And as a result, it, yeah, it's just a big hodgepodge and nothing that doesn't make any sense. And it's not very funny and it's not very thrilling. Some of the effects hold up reasonably well, especially that building sequence. There are a couple of moments that are really memorable and well done, but just collectively, it just, it doesn't come together. It doesn't have a point. It doesn't have a purpose. And it's just not very good. Unlike next week's movie. <laughs> the hometown favorite. Which is... The Bride, starring Sting, Jennifer Beale, Clancy Brown, and who's the little fella? Uh, Roger Daltrey? No. Uh. <laughs> David Rappaport. The Bride is everything I love about movies. It's so good and so bad. It's, it, yeah. I can't wait for us to break this one down. It's going to be amazing. Please come back 
next week as we will be discussing The Bride, starring all of those people who I just mentioned. Uh, as always, like, rate, review, send us a line. Um, you can find us, pick6movies.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, all those other things. We're on the internet. You know how the, all this works. So thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, come back and see us again as we continue this season of Monsters Are Universal. Uh, we have two more episodes left, and uh, we're looking forward to, uh, to sharing two more contemporary takes on classic Universal Studios monster movies.